Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today with my friends, Steve. Well, hello there. And from the CineStudy podcast, Film Dylan. His name wouldn't be Steve, would it? <laughs> Call me Snake. Yes, this is Dylan. Nice to be here. Glad to be here. Excited to talk about this movie. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's October, and we're here doing the thing that all of your favorite movie podcasts are doing. We're talking about horror movies, or sometimes just movies vaguely related to the Halloween season. Uh, But in this case, a horror movie, and a good horror movie. Glitter with Mariah Carey. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, let's do that someday, Steve. No, no thanks. Yeah, we'll do a double feature. <laughs> Glitter with Mariah Carey. And what's that other fucking uh, music movie you hate? Uh, oh, August Rush. August Rush. Boy, yeah, that would just be suicide for me. Next August, we're doing August Rush. So look for that in August 2022. Listen uh, to Steve die. <laughs> listen to Steve die inside. <laughs> I think that's why people tune in in the first place, but... We're here to talk about Scream, and uh, on the topic of movies of this type, but on the other end of the spectrum, I want to talk about bad horror movies, bad scary movies. Film Dylan, what are some of the horror movies that you've seen in your life that you would just say are like the worst, the shittiest, uh, the least well-made, however you want to put it, but what are some that suck to you? All right, so I kind of take this in three different ways. So I have like three quick picks. So it's like (laughs) one that I was anticipating good things and very underwhelmed like i didn't get what all the hype was about one that is sort of uh campy and some people might find it so bad it's good but i just find it kind of bad and then one that's just straight up bad so for the one that i had heard good things and it just didn't quite live up to the expectations would be uh the grudge i think it's juan i'm not necessarily saying that right Mm -hmm. but it's a japanese horror movie it's kind of one of the more iconic ones in that uh collection of movies I don't know. I just found it kind of uh, meandering. I didn't quite find it very scary. I think just the style of of the movie and the way these kind of ghosts are made in that movie, it it never quite clicked with me. Uh, A movie that a lot of people find so bad it's good, but I just do not enjoy is Freddy vs. Jason, which I think I actually floated as as an option when we were first discussing movies to come on and do oh yeah that's that's something we're gonna do a podcast on eventually and i promise the audience that it's a perfect one i don't know if i'll be able to convince steve to join but (laughs) me and dylan will be there yeah i don't know yeah so that's a that's an interesting one i mean there are some moments of of fun in there but it's just there's so many uh groan inducing moments in there um and then one that's just straight up bad and maybe i wouldn't even fully classify it as horror but depends how you classify the alien franchise but alien resurrection is just garbage it's it's terrible it's so rough to get through there's a lot of very cheesy moments there's one or two interesting moments but i mean like uh, there's a whole scene where sigourney weaver plays 1v1 basketball it's like that where where does that fit in the alien franchise so that's uh yeah that takes the cake for me yeah good that's a very good point but she does famously have that really fucking lucky trick shot or whatever right yeah right true that's so somewhat i mean that is cool i don't know what it has to do with alien (laughs) (laughs) but like the fact that she can do that shot i guess is dope like (laughs) uh i'm gonna talk about some of mine before steve goes on a very long-winded rant fine (laughs) i tend to forget 
why I hate horror movies that I hate. So horror movies is like, it's a genre I'm not super into, right? I like some for sure, especially ones I grew up on because I'm a child of nostalgia. But in terms of horror movies that I see, I usually see one, don't like it or don't like it a lot. And then forget about it as the years go on and forget about why I don't like it. So that is the case a little bit with some of these that I'm going to mention. These are all recent. These are all within the last five years. Uh, I go to the movie theaters a lot, as you know, Steve. Mm -hmm. I saw the remake of Flatliners a couple years ago. That is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, period. That movie sucks Many, many balls, Steve. <laughs> I, I like the original, and I ended up watching the remake via stream after you told me how terrible it was because I had to make the... And not that I didn't believe you. I just really I wanted to see it. Yeah, it's not. It's not good. It's not good. Here's what I remember about this movie, and like I mentioned, I tend to forget. Um, I remember the editing being so fucking weird. I, I remember a character was like under attack from the monster or whatever. <laughs> We don't see how that scene finishes, right? and then it cuts, and then he's like at lunch with his friends. And I remember thinking, like, um, this is going to be like a thing for later. They're playing with time or something, right? It's a Pulp Fiction thing. It no, wasn't. That's just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just one example. Um, another movie that I really hate is the new movie Blair Witch. And it's not new exactly. It came out in like 2016. Okay, that Blair Witch. But not the Blair Witch Project. There's one that's just called Blair Witch. Yeah. That is like a soulless version of the Blair Witch Project, which as we know is a found footage movie, very famously marketed as quote unquote real. <laughs> this is like, it's it's not your grandpappy's found footage movie. Everyone has a <laughs> cell phone. We got drones. And it's like, it's like really annoying, right? Like, all that kind of shit, it's like, it's it's the found footage movie of the modern age. And, I mean, aside from all that, it just was very forgettable and bland in terms yeah. of horror movie. And another one, just real quick, Lights Out. Which one was that? Lights Out came out uh, around the same year, I think, 2016, somewhere in that area. And it was just like, it's just one of those generic horror movies that comes out mid-year that no yeah. one remembers. Yeah. It's just like, it's people in a house, there's a monster or a ghost. Uh, the main character is an attractive woman. People around her are dying. She has to save her son and or little brother. She finds a way to defeat it through an expert. You know, like, it's just a very typical horror movie. And right. like, that's what pisses me off. A movie that it's just like, this is everything I hate about horror movies. It does nothing different. And I think in order to be successful for my ranking, it has to do something at least a little bit different or new or at least just have a good story. Right. Yeah. Something original, yeah. Steve, what about you? Mm, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bad ones out there. And, and forgetting about them is a problem for me because so many, like like Lights Out, so many of those come out on a year-to-year basis that there's, there's probably dozens of these that I've seen over the years that I just have not thought about since because I hated them. But, like, the the sequels to this movie were not very good. They weren't the worst films I've ever seen, but they weren't very good. The I know, still know what you did last summer. Sequels were also not very good, but... I mean, if we're talking about, excuse me, really horrible ones. Yeah, I, I got to agree, uh, Dylan. Freddy vs. Jason was terrible. Along those lines, Jason X, definitely one of the worst ones that's ever mm-hmm. been produced. Ooh, see our previous episode. Right. Any of the Hellraiser movies made after the second one, most of which were straight to home video. They're terrible. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, didn't even have Michael Myers in it. It's about uh, fucking poisonous Halloween masks or some shit. <laughs> really, really terrible movie. People love that movie. People are wrong. I know. I, that seems to have a cult following for sure. Right. People I are wrong. Why? You why? hear that, people? <laughs> right. I, you are incorrect. 
objectively. If you like that movie, please comment. I mean this sincerely. Comment and tell me what it is about that film you could possibly like, because I sincerely can't think of anything redeeming about it. Also, quick note to the people that are about to comment. Don't tell us about how they were trying to do like an anthology series of yeah. horror related movies <laughs> and the history of it. Like we get that. Right. Steve wants to know, and I don't really care, but Steve wants to know <laughs> why you like the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't tell me here's what they were aiming for. Like I get it. I, I want to know why you think it's good. Uh, so uh, we'll see review dude, Josh in the comments very soon. Keep going. Right. Um, Dude, there was a remake from 2005. It was a remake of an old horror movie. It's called The House of Wax. It had Paris Hilton in it. Mm. And in, as part of the promotion. Oh, my God. Right? As part of the promotion for this movie, they actually gave away the fact that her character dies during the film. And they were selling T-shirts that said, see Paris die. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> it's horrible. Whole movie is horrible. That might be like the worst one I've seen in years and years. Real quick, a couple of others. There, there was a horror movie from the 70s called The Wicker Man. It's an old school style of horror, but it's great. There was a remake from the 2000s with Nick Cage in it. The remake with Nick Cage in it, horrible movie. Horrible. It's definitely one of the worst. Uh, it was <laughs> Why? Also, Why don't you like that movie, Steve? What's wrong with it? it you know how um, Nick Cage is always ridiculous? Yeah. And that Nick Cage being ridiculous always ends up being the point of the movie? Yeah. What about the bees, Steve? The bees. Exactly. Exactly. So I watched that movie, Steve. And I watched it because I wanted to get to the point with the bees. The bees. It didn't, it didn't happen. Um, it turns out that's a deleted scene. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, it is. You have to see it on the in the extras. Yeah, so yeah. that was a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, like the, the original version of that movie is about a really innocent man basically being taken apart psychologically before he's literally made part of a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And this one was basically just Nick Cage running around a village being nuts until he dies in the end. Like... So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Dude, I, his reactions to things are genuinely funny in that. Movie. They are. God damn it! I don't want to go off into too much of a tangent, but I swear to God, in the last twenty-four to thirty-six months, Nick Cage has made something like eight movies, and and I can't keep track of them. Some of them have not gone to theaters. If you look like on look through Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. There's, 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 there's seriously, there's like six, seven, eight of them just in the last two and a half or three years, just back to back him being nuts, like B level movies. Like and, Michael Keaton facing off against Jack Napier, getting nuts. Right. <laughs> you want to get nuts? Then he had to. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. Uh, well, wait, 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 real quick though. He, he, Nick Cage was in a movie this year that I, I think it's one of my favorite movies of the year so far, Pig. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, look, he does some great stuff. The, this, this is the, the, the conundrum with Nick Cage. It's like he does occasionally do some really good stuff, and, and, and sometimes he's really good in it. It's not even like, like my criticism of Will Smith is he's always Will Smith. My criticism in Nick Cage, I guess, is that he's always, I guess maybe it's the same thing. He's always Nick Cage. It was crazy. He's always Will Smith, too. Right, yeah. <laughs> he's always, always, always Will Smith. Smith. You know? There's too many of them. There's too many of them. It's all Will Smith. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, Nick Cage has been in some good stuff. There was one other one I wanted to mention quickly. It's called Godsend. It's a really, 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 really stupid movie with Robert De Niro from the early 2000s where he clones a kid for some people and the kid turns out to be all fucked up and have spliced DNA in him. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, honestly. It's like, how did Robert De Niro even end up in this? <laughs> this sounds so strange. Robert De Niro, I mean, sure, he's done some great movies, but yeah. 
Um, he has done some less than great movies, Steve. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the problems with De Niro is like, what a mixed bag of films. That guy has chosen some real fucking weird ones. Remember the movie where he boxed Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and like like the sequels to the, what was the first one called? Meet the Parents? The first one was funny, but I think by the time I got to the third one, it was like, this is just stupid. All right, you're out of the circle of trust. <laughs> right? <laughs> I actually don't like any of those movies. I, yeah, yeah. The fr- I, f- I will admit I found the first one amusing the first time I saw it, but yeah. I talked about this on the Heavyweights podcast, but that era of um, Ben Stiller... I wasn't on the Heavyweights podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that era of Ben Stiller comedies... This, this wasn't the word at the time, but at the time, it was like cringy for me. No one said that back then, by the yeah. way, but... It was just a little bit too much of that for me. Something about Mary is the one that I think still stands out. But I think that's the kind of movie like either you still find funny or you're totally disinterested in. Also, the Farrelly brothers are just kind of the Farrelly brothers. Their stuff's all largely the same. Hmm. But. Yeah. So Scream, directed by Wes Craven, 1996. Film Dylan, what are your memories of the movie Scream? When did you see it? What did you take away from it at the time? Yeah, so I mentioned this on a podcast that you and I did, Corey, on my podcast in a study. We broke down the top 10 movies of the 90s, and Scream was on my list. Scream was a movie that I just kind of randomly sat down, and I was like, hey, I remember that movie Scream. I still haven't seen it. I want to watch the opening scene. I remember it had a really good opening scene. That was the only thing I had seen. And then I watched the opening scene. I was like, you know what? I should just definitely watch the rest of this movie. I don't know why I hadn't had it on my radar up to that point, but I remember really liking it, and then it would just kind of stick with me. And then months later, I'm like, you know, I need to watch Scream again. And then since then, it's just been like a boulder going downhill of like growing and growing how much I enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, I I definitely it it almost caught me off guard the first time. I I kind of thought it was going to be a lot campier and cheesier, more dated than it actually is. And instead, I think it's definitely one of my favorite horror movies. So, For sure. The camp factor in this movie has kind of increased as time has gone by, as this movie has become dated, I think. And uh, it actually, I think, plays to the movie's benefit in a lot of ways. Steve, I I said this movie came out in 1996. Mm. I'm sure you remember that year well. I was Mm -hmm. 10 years old. I remember it well. It actually came out in December of that year. I thought it had come out earlier in the year. It did. But I saw it when it came out. Did you? So several of my friends got to see it because they had like older siblings or parents that took them. I was 13 in 96, so I wasn't old enough to get in by myself. It was an R-rated film. My parents didn't have any problems with R-rated movies, but neither of them was interested in taking me. You couldn't even get into your own family's theater. <laughs> right? Yeah, because it's it's a law. You know, they get busted. I did find, I can say this now, I guess, because the theater's long gone. There did used to be a man theater on uh, Ventura Boulevard in Encino. There's like a Whole Foods there now. That The people in the ticket booth there did not give a shit. I got into all kinds of rated R movies that theater when I was like 14, 15, but we didn't, we didn't make it for Scream. So I, I like some friends of mine got to see it. I I did see it within several months, like as soon as it came out on home video. I ended up watching it with a friend, like a, like Friday night at somebody's house. And so this is one of those movies from that era. Unfortunately, did not get to see it in a theater, but I I liked it immediately. I wasn't expecting to like it the first time I watched it. I figured it was just going to be like like another Freddy Krueger type movie. It'd be boring. It's Wes Craven. It's the same thing all over again. Even though I kind of liked the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and uh, I really liked it. I I agree with you guys. It was it was supposed to be a little campy. We'll talk about it, but it was never meant to be a straight horror. I really enjoyed seeing it, and uh, I still enjoy it now. I still, it's a nice slice of '96, you know. Definitely, 
I, I just want to talk about that era a little bit more. Yeah. Because in 1997, the following year, I remember that Halloween very well. You know, I, I had many Halloween experiences as a kid. I would always go trick-or-treating, dress up in different costumes. But I remember everyone that was trick-or-treating that following year was dressed as Ghostface. Yeah. <laughs> you had every type of Ghostface, you know? But it's it's mostly funny because it's like all these like little right. kids, right? So like short little kids in this little ghost face with the robe. <laughs> like hangs down to their knees. And like non -thre not threatening at all, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of them weren't even conscious of what the movie really was. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Probably not a lot of them have even seen it, but there was so right. much hype and it was so popular. And then there was like different takes on the mask, the ghost face mask. Like yeah. there was the ghost face mask that like had blood flowing through it. Yeah. Where it was like a plastic cover that was like blood inside between the layers. And I can't remember. Well, I can't remember what name shows up in the movie. There's a scene in the movie where Dewey shows a package of one of the costumes to the sheriff. There's a name on it. And that that was a real costume. This this had been around for years before that that mask, and there were different names for it. But you're right. All of a sudden, after the movie, that that mask, which had been around forever, got super popular. The the robe that was supposed to go with the mask in the movie was going to be white. They wanted him to look like he was trying to mimic a ghost. And sometime just before shooting started, they decided the white robes looked um, too much like a KKK outfit and changed it. Good call. Yeah. 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 Probably the right move. I also think it's just not quite as intimidating honestly like, yeah yeah i would assume the idea is to have like blood splashed against it yeah true and they wanted him to look more ghost-like and and the weinsteins we'll talk about how the movie got made in a minute but the weinsteins didn't even like this the, the screen mask at first when they saw the, the initial screen tests with that mask they told craven to find something different and and he argued he said no this is the right one and they made him shoot some other screen tests with several other masks and they ended up going, saying, yeah, I'd use that one. It works. They said that's a Craven? Yeah. He's like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm busy hunting Spider-Man. Right? Right. <laughs> Craven the Hunter? Okay. Uh, that's obscure. Yeah, no, ter terrible Spider-Man character. The leopard vest. I never liked him. All right. He's cool. What's wrong? <laughs> his design is just lame. He has potential. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's the design that's lame. <laughs> it's really it. All right, Steve. You alluded to this a moment ago. How the hell was Scream made? Okay, so the uh, the movie was written by a guy named Kevin Williamson, who has gone on to do a lot of work since, but had very little of a career at the time. He was actually going broke and really needed money to pay bills. He was in the middle of writing a script for a movie that at the time he was calling Kisses, Killing Mrs. Tingle, Killing Mrs. Tingle, that movie ended up getting sold and caught in development hell and eventually did come out under the name Teaching Mrs. Tingle. But he was trying to write the script for it and couldn't get through it. He was trying to write another script, script at the same time for a movie he called Scary Movie. For anyone curious, years oh, later... Oh, he wrote the parody of his own movie? That, and that's why they chose that name for the parody is because Scary Movie was the original working title for this. He's just trying to work on the two tandem, couldn't get either of them done. He ends up going to Palm Springs somewhere. He secludes himself away in Palm Springs. He ends up getting the script for Scary Movie finished. At the same time he, he finishes it, he also comes up with outlines for two sequels. 
because he figures if he's going to try to sell it, it would be more attractive to potential buyers if there's a, a potential franchise in it. So he, he takes this script, he attaches the two outlines for these two sequels, and he goes through an agent, and there's a process they use in the film industry that's called putting out to bid, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Studios get shown the script, and then they all get to put in a bid for what, you know, if they want to pay for it and how much. The script goes out to bid on a Friday. No one is initially interested in it. Somehow the weekend changes everything, and by Monday, there's like four studios bidding on this film. The last two people in this bidding war, I think this is interesting, turned out to be Bob and Harvey Weinstein on one side who were representing their production companies, Dimension and Miramax. And on the other side, Oliver Stone. I have no idea why Oliver Stone would have wanted this script. It is so weird to fucking think what this movie might have ended up being if Oliver Stone had owned it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Born on the 31st of October. Right? That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. But Williamson, Kevin Williamson, the screenwriter, ended up deciding to sell the movie to the Weinsteins for $400,000 in a contract guaranteeing at least one sequel and an option potentially getting a third movie. So that's what he sold it for. The Williamson went on to, to do a bunch of other stuff. He created the show Dawson's Creek for the Warner Brothers Network. He created another show years later called The Vampire Diaries. Um, oh, that was him. Okay. Yeah, it was him also. So he seems to be very in tune with like uh, media for teenagers. I know he wrote. Yeah. I know he did with Last Summer. Actually, I think he did, right? Did, that one, I'm not sure. You might be okay, right about I might that. be mistaken. So don't comment. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, he went on to do a whole bunch of other stuff, including contributing to the sequel for this. He ended up not being involved in the third film because he was making something else. And now I can't remember what it was. But um, anyway, he was inspired a little bit to write this script by a real guy named the, uh, I think the Gainesville killer or the Gainesville murderer. He was killing college students in, in Florida. His original idea was about a call, a, a, a killer who was, stalking one particular young woman kind of like Halloween because Halloween's apparently one of his favorite movies and the idea revolved around this killer calling her multiple times throughout the movie as he got closer the story kind of evolved into this the Weinsteins owned uh, Miramax at the time they had a second label within Miramax called Dimension that had been set up to produce like sci-fi and horror films so they wanted to make this movie for the Dimension label uh, Peter Williamson for it ran for it there's a lot of conflicting information out there about Craven's in involvement. A as per usual, you go through IMDb, Wikipedia, whatever, like they'll argue with each other. Seems like in some cases people were making stories up. Based on what I've heard, Craven liked the script enough. He, he actually saw it before it got sold and liked it enough that he was initially thinking about trying to get someone to buy it so that he could direct it. And then lost interest in it when Miram, when uh, the Weinsteins bought it. The Weinsteins ended up approaching him anyway, and he declined to be involved because he was trying to make, he was trying to do a remake, I think, of The House on Haunted Hill, which ended up collapsing and then getting remade later with other people. They went to other directors, including Robert Rodriguez, and uh, nothing really worked. And Craven ended up signing back onto the film. I don't think there's a whole lot super interesting about the pre-development beyond that. Aside from that, they did consider some other people to uh, play some of these big parts. 
Nev Campbell played the role, the lead role is, is Sidney Campbell, but apparently the writer Williamson wanted Molly Ringwald to play that part at one point. She declined because she felt she was too old already to play someone who was supposed to be in high school. She was probably right. She is correct. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, the producers originally apparently wanted Drew Barrymore to play the Sydney character, and Barrymore had some reason why she didn't think it was a good idea for her to be the lead, lead in this movie, so she ended up taking another part, which we'll talk about when we discuss the opening of the movie. Apparently, Elizabeth Berkley auditioned for the part of the Gail Weathers, the, the reporter that Courtney Cox ended up playing. And, you know, on its own, that might not have been a bad cast, but she'd relatively recently been in Showgirls. And the backlash from it was so negative that the producers were like, the wine scenes were like, there's no way we're putting you in this. Get lost. <laughs> Did they tell her to really get lost? Like I mean, she showed up to the audition like, get lost. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't put in those words, but th- from what I've heard, that was the message. It's basically, we're not even interested enough for you to audition. <laughs> um, <laughs> like... Apparently, they did offer the Billy Loomis part, Sydney's boyfriend, to Joaquin Phoenix at one point, who turned it down. He's an amazing actor, but totally wrong for the part. I'm glad he didn't take it. They ended up casting Skeet Ulrich, who has not been in a whole lot of other stuff, surprisingly. Every time I see Skeet Ulrich's face, I feel like this dude's been in a million things. But every time I look up his resume, I'm like, it turns out he hasn't actually been in all that much that I've actually seen. I know what it is. You're thinking of Johnny Depp. It's probably (laughs) it, you know? (laughs) He does look a lot like a a, a video game character to me. There's a... I can't remember the character's name. There's a character in the Virtual Fighter series of fighting games that looks just like a like an animated Skeetle Rich to me. Ah, uh, Virtual Fighter, everyone's favorite fighting game right? series. Yeah. yeah, everyone loves those those games. There's been like five of them. He has a video game character name. He Skeet does. Ulrich. It's exactly. Can you miss Skeet Ulrich versus Billy? Fight <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> like very strange. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, real quick, uh, Matthew Lillard. This is the last one for casting. Matthew Lillard was already acting at that point, but did not intend to audition for a part in this film. He was dating an actress at the time. He went with her for something she was auditioning in, bumped into a casting director who knew him from other projects, who said, hey, come audition for this this horror movie. And he did, and he got the part, which is great. Yeah, he was in Hackers the year before. Yeah. And uh, he, he carried over some of that Matthew Lillard style energy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, he was the exact right energy for that part. And he ended up, I'll talk about when we get to the scenes, but he ended up doing a few things kind of ad lib free form on the set that really did work for, work for that part. Very nice. Thank you, as always, Steve. We're diving into the movie Scream. We have Drew Barrymore as Casey, film Dylan. Can you tell us about what happens? Yes, well, so I think it's uh, a almost perfect accident that Drew Barrymore had scheduling conflicts and ended up playing this role rather than the lead role, because I can't imagine how shocking this would have been to people. Yeah, so she's yeah. home alone, and she's going to make up some popcorn, although that doesn't start quite immediately. It's just start with, like, we get right into it, title card, boom, phone ringing, she picks it up, and a very ominous voice comes over the phone and is just kind of asking her questions, trying to figure out who she is, and she's kind of reluctant thinks it's the wrong number and this guy is quite quite persistent so you got a boyfriend (laughs) why you want to ask me out on a date maybe do you have a boyfriend Um, no you never told me your name why do you want to know my name i want to know who i'm looking at what did you say 
I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? What? Hello? Look, I gotta go. Wait, I thought we were gonna go out. Uh, nah, I don't think so. Don't hang up on me. At what point would you guys stop answering these phone calls? So if it's nowadays, I wouldn't answer ever under any circumstances. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but we're talking 90s, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like in the 90s, people had this like desire to socially connect. Oh, I guess that's true always, right? People have a desire to socially connect. Nowadays, that's done primarily through social media, I think. But back then, you did that through phone calls in a lot of cases. Yeah, no texting, no Facebook. The internet is primitive at that point. Uh, you know, very few people were using IRC. I think absolutely the phone, the phone was still like, the 90s was like the last gasp of that. It was like, like the phone really being people's connection point. I, re I remember cordless phones, like high power cordless phones were a huge deal in the mid to late 90s. Panasonic was like the king of that market. And they, they were advertising, they had phones that could work like an eighth of a mile from where the base station was. You can walk anywhere. You can have a three acre piece of property. You can walk away with your phone. It's great. You know, and it was a big deal that answering machines had gone digital and weren't using tapes anymore. Yeah. It's like, yeah, absolutely. It, I, I have heard that the number of people in the US who, who had caller ID subscriptions like doubled after this movie came out. Suddenly people really wanted it. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. I can see it, yeah. The, real quick, I'll let them get back to it, but real quick, the guy who did the voice on the phone is named Roger Jackson. Nev Campbell and Drew Barrymore were not introduced to him at all until after shooting was complete. Even though he made all of the calls from on set, they had him standing somewhere on the opposite side of the soundstage with a cell phone making the calls. Craven didn't want Nev Campbell or Drew Barrymore to meet him because they thought their reactions to what he was saying would be more genuine if they didn't know who he was. The producers originally intended to redub his voice with someone more famous at, during post-production, and they ended up liking his voice so much they just kept it. He does have a really, I want to say, cool-sounding voice. He but does. Film Dylan, what do you think about his voice? Is it just creepy to you? It's, it is somewhere in the middle of cool and terrifying. I think it's in the nice little overlap area between the two. And uh, are we hiding the ball at all about the killer and the identity? Or... <laughs> no. Okay, all right, because I was going to say, there's a, there's a strange part of this. I don't know how it worked out, but I swear when you listen to it, you can still hear a little bit of Billy, of, of Skeet Ulrich or Ulrich. Like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's my mind playing tricks on me, but somehow it works perfectly to... Never really alert you to who it is, but I feel like you can just kind of pick up on some of the, some of those subtle tones and stuff like that. That I don't know, maybe just gets to it. And of course, the dialogue, very scary movie influenced, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about throughout this podcast. But yeah, I think it's they they pretty much nailed this voice in a, in a way that could have gone very wrong. They nail it. It reminds me another movie that I love is Black Christmas, which depends very heavily on phone calls. And the phone calls there are so weird that if they didn't quite nail the voice acting in that, it honestly would have come off as somewhat comedic, and instead it's terrifying. And I feel like this falls into the same camp of, like, could have slipped into some cheese and, and stuff at some points, but every time I hear that voice, I'm like, ah, oh, no, here we go again. Listen, asshole! No, you listen, you little bitch! If you hang up on me again, I'll gut you like a fish, understand? <sighs> yeah. Is this some kind of joke? More of a game, really. Handle that. 
It is really good. And we have Drew Barrymore as Casey, like I mentioned before, who, based on the poster and the trailer, you think is a big part of this movie. For right? sure. Uh, we know she's just in the opening scene because she gets killed by this guy. But it's kind of a, a good way maybe to set up stakes, I think, because it shows that people are at risk in this movie, right? You see yeah. someone, you think they're going to be a main character, they're a big star, they get killed. Like, nowadays, I think if you see a movie and there's a big star in it and they're marketed in the movie heavily, you're pretty sure that person is safe, right? Right. This movie is aware of that fact, and it takes advantage of it. Yeah, it is very smart. Everybody is at risk, and everybody is a suspect, and it's hard to pull off both of those things simultaneously. So that's definitely a major point where this movie excels. There's a formula to it, a very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. This opening part with with Barrymore's character, Casey, is is actually incredible, I think. Like, I think that opening segment, up until the part that this, this portion of the film ends, is one of the best moments in horror filmmaking ever. I mean that sincerely. Like, Agree. It, it, th- thank you. I'm glad somebody else thinks so. Like, it's so... It's, it gets so tense. It gets so perfect. It, it's actually kind of... Like, if you let yourself be in it, it's kind of horrifying. Like, she's being stalked by this guy who's obviously close, but she can't figure out where, and then the boyfriend appears, and then... The, like, the worst part of it, really, is the moment where her parents get home, because there's this frantic, like, something awful has obviously happened, and we don't even know what, like... And then, and then the moment where they find her, it's it's really it's really really fucking good. Even if the rest of the movie weren't good, like this opening segment is good. It like to your point, it really it sets up stakes, but it also is like, here's a fucking movie. Like you're gonna you're, here's a ride. You're gonna have a ride. Are you just saying this because you were in this scene, Steve, as the boyfriend? <laughs> yes, absolutely. That was me. Of course, his name is a Steve. brief cameo. Look. <laughs> You've had your fun now, so I think you better just leave or else. Or else what? Or else my boyfriend will be here any second and he'll be pissed when he finds out. I thought you didn't have a boyfriend. I lied. I do have a boyfriend and he'll be here any second, so your ass better be good. Sure. I swear. He's big and he plays football and he'll kick the shit out of you. I'm getting you scared. I'm shaking in my boots. So you better just leave. His name wouldn't be Steve, would it? How do you know his name? Turn on the patio lights. Again. I, somehow, somehow Steve in movies always ends up being a name either A, for someone who's really feeble... Or B for somebody who's like a jock football player. And there's no in between. <laughs> right? Yeah, Steve is in movies always end up either being juke, ju- jock douchebags or like the meekest idiot in the room. It really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> the killing of the Drew Barrymore character Casey is is quite brutal, and that's where the R rating is in this movie. It's in the violence. The R rating is not because of unnecessary shit. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I'll try to compress this, but I wanted to touch on that subject real quick since you brought it up. Like, Craven had a lot of trouble. Williamson's script was actually more violent to begin with, and the Weinsteins specifically asked him to take stuff out before they even started shooting because they knew it would never be able to make it into the movie. And Williamson and, and Craven toned it down to a point they thought that would be acceptable, 
but the MPAA just was fucking not not having it. And Carpenter ended up having to resubmit recuts of this film like nine separate times before they finally got an R rating out of it. And the death of the Casey character was one of the two parts of the movie they had the most problem with. And all in all, the ridiculousness of this is the difference between an NC-17 and an R came came down to 20 seconds worth of footage. But um, there were some extra shots throughout the movie of violence or gore that ended up getting trimmed just because they had so much trouble with the MPAA. Now, I know we've talked about them before and how ridiculous and inconsistent they are. And just to that point, after like the ninth submission of this film, trying to get it down to an R rating, Bob Weinstein got so fucking fed up with the MPAA that he went to them personally and apparently gave them a bunch of shit and managed to convince them to take it down to an R rating. And when Craven asked him later how he did it, he said it basically came down to convincing them that this was a comedy with horror elements and not a horror film. And for some reason, that was enough for the MPAA people to say, oh, okay, well, then it's an R rating. (laughs) It's really, really strange, right? There has been an uncut release of this film that contains the stuff the MPAA forced him to cut out. There's also some extra stuff at the end where Stu and Billy are stabbing each other. But the uncut version of the film only came out on Laserdisc. It's never been re-released anywhere. And there's a commentary on it from Craven that was specific to that release that I don't think has been reused. And uh, apparently, I don't know how the Laserdisc squeezed out because Disney already owned Miramax at the point that it happened. But they managed to squeeze out this Laserdisc and Disney's got some weird policy that they will not release unrated content to home video. So because the uncut version of the film never technically got rated, it never even got an NC-17, Disney will not re-release it on home video. Disney Disney owns the rights to this film now. So we'll never get the uncut again because Disney won't do that. It's fucking weird. Going back to Bob Weinstein. Yeah. Do you think that is a true story or do you think he just like paid them off or didn't or threaten them or use some other means? Like that seems like a little bit too simple. Like yeah. no, just look at it as at a comedy. They're like, oh, okay, we never thought of it that way before. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of Weinstein's awful, assaulty behavior otherwise. No, that's Bob. Yeah. Or that, that's Bob, that's true. Bob's cool. Bob, yeah. But uh all right, but, I think I have no idea. Right? <laughs> Don't quote me on that. The, the like even if we let's for just I'm not saying we should forget that stuff, but just for the sake of this momentary conversation, exempting that shit from the conversation. When you get to the level those guys were at, and especially they weren't just successful, they were the ones in charge of the whole company. They they do wield a kind of mafia-like power over that industry. And I, I wouldn't imagine that they're going as far as threatening to, like, break people's kneecaps or shoot them in the head, leave them in, in the lakes. I don't think he went and he's like, I'm going to put a pair of cement shoes on you. But uh, You're going to sleep with the fishes. <laughs> right? But I, but I do think, frankly, guys at that level, including probably them, definitely go around sometimes basically insinuating that they will ruin your career or make things difficult for you somehow, or destroy your next movie, or fuck up your livelihood if you don't do something they want. Absolutely, I think they do that kind of stuff. And and he may have he may have had some leverage over somebody at the MPAA where he could go in and say, I'm going to really fuck you up if you don't just give this movie an R rating. It's definitely possible. <laughs> all speculation. <laughs> yeah, all speculation. <laughs> all speculation. <laughs> Which is always fun. Uh, but I guess just to 
kind of close the opening scene, which I agree is totally great. It's wonderful. It's just cool to see like this movie commentary within the movie in terms of like, you know, you can tell like the person on the phone is a movie geek. He's giving her movie trivia. Obviously, he's tormenting her and he's about to kill her and he killed the boyfriend and all that. But like, I think that engages movie people like us in a it big does. way, right? Sure. <laughs> in fact, a lo- there's a lot of references in this movie that engage engage movie people. When her parents get home after finding she's not in the house, the husband tells the wife to, to go to the Mackenzie's. This is the same thing that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character tells to the kid she's babysitting in the movie Halloween when she realizes Michael Myers is, is skulking around. At one point, Billy climbs into... Um, uh, Sydney's window in the exact same manner that Johnny Depp's character did with his, with the Heather character in the original Nightmare Before Elm Street. It's great. There's one one other thing real quick I forgot to mention. They shot this scene apparently in a real house and they were using a, a real phone when Casey calls 911. I don't know how it is Drew Barrymore didn't notice that someone picked up, but apparently the people, whoever was in charge of disconnecting the phone line didn't do it. And when she hit 911 on the phone, it actually called 911. And some operator overheard Drew Barrymore screaming and crying for this scene and had no idea who it was or what was going on. So apparently law enforcement ended up like calling the setback and getting a hold of people. I I think I've heard squad cars showed up like they wanted to know what was happening. They had to prove they were filming a movie. We're filming a movie, I promise. Prove it. Look at the movie set. Sir Drew Barrymore is actually dead. Well, maybe they saw the very good dummy of Drew Barrymore hanging. It's a great dummy. That dummy is fucking perfection. I love it. Yeah, it is is strong. I think one of my favorite touches in this scene is something that uh, is just pure Wes Craven, which is there's a moment where Drew Barrymore, like, it it hasn't fully gone downhill yet, but she looks out the front door thinking she's going to spot somebody, and obviously you're like, it's like a POV shot, and you're like, all right, something's going to jump out of me here. Nothing does. And normally when nothing does happen in a scene where you would think there'd be a jump scare, you'd cut back and it's like, all right, we're fine. You're back to like a relief shot and you continue down the story. But when you cut back, it's almost more nerve wracking because you get this shot of her face framed in the door, like the three panes of the door. Uh, And she's in the very left one. So there's just these two big open ones on the right. And so rather than kind of relieve you from, all right, like there was no jump scare there. It's like another setup like, hey, but there might even be one here. And then he still doesn't give you one there. He just keeps moving along, and it just works so well to build the tension of this scene. Definitely. two different moments where she walks outside the house or runs outside the house and sees a car. There's there's one moment where she sees it out on the main road coming toward the house, and there's another moment where she sees it coming off the main road up the driveway, and I kind of feel like during both of those moments she might have had an opportunity to run and didn't, but I don't know. Well, that's another great part of the scene is the fact that, like, I guess we don't know this yet, and clearly she doesn't know this, but there's two guys. I mean, she's kind of going to get cornered. That's true. She goes one way, another guy meets her somewhere, and that gets to the heart of some of the, like, trivia questions, like, uh, especially the which door am I at is obviously, like, there was going to be no correct answer to that. Answer. And uh, so I, I like the way they kind of play with that idea. It's, it makes it a very rewatchable movie in that sense kind of picking up on those things. You're absolutely you right it. about that part. I, I'll be, although she does, she does technically get outside. I agree yes. with you, although she does technically, but also to your point though, there is, I, I think it's, I think it's the Stu character, Matthew Lillard later in the movie talks about this game that we play. And he says, we ask them questions and basically it doesn't matter if they get the answer right. We kill them anyway. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you are right for sure. Suck it, Jigsaw. <laughs> <laughs> Jigsaw's lame as shit. So that's the opening scene. It's really great. We do get to meet our actual main characters of the movie later after we get away from the misdirect of Drew Barrymore and the setup of the brutal killings within the movie and the fact that there is a killer. Sidney Prescott is Nev Campbell. And then we have Skeet Ulrich, who plays Billy, a man with a very unusual name. Um, he was also in the craft with Nev Campbell, notably. I was just looking at this. His real name is Brian Ray Trout and Skeet Ulrich, or Ulrich is his stage name. Why he chose that, yeah. I don't know. Oh, well, it's actually, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page. The nickname Skeet originated from Skeeter, a, na- a nickname he was given by his little league coach because of his small stature and because he was fast as a mosquito. Straight from Wikipedia. Fast as a mosquito? What no, the? He was a he was a huge fan of Doug. He's lying. <laughs> Hi, Doug. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say he's a big fan of skeet shooting and Lars Ulrich from Metallica. I know this is such a <laughs> it's such a strange name to come up with, even with that nickname. I'm just not sure this is what I would have gone with. Man, then you get the other end with like Frank Zappa's kids who got weird names on purpose, like Dweezel. <laughs> What's wrong with Dweezel, bro? Dweezel's not a human being's <laughs> that's, name. That's Dweezel. my father's name. <laughs> <laughs> if that were your dad's name, I would say this to his face. The weasel's a hamster's, hamster's name. <laughs> so Sydney and Billy are in Sydney's room. Billy kind of like hops in through the window. Clarissa explains it all style. Hey, Sam. Nightmare on Elm Street style, please. <laughs> no, Clarissa explains it all style because she's on the computer too, right? Isn't Clarissa always programming video games in that show? That's true. She's always doing something on that computer. So... Steve, I have a question for you. Is this scene important to fully tell the story of the movie? Yeah, yeah a little bit. I think they could have worked it in other ways. It's one of the few scenes in the movie that I'm I I don't dislike it, but it's not great. It's it's basically just there to establish that Billy and Sydney have been dating for a while and they were fooling around a lot early on, but something has changed recently and Sydney is not as into the relationship as she used to be. I was home watching television. The, uh, the exorcist was on. It got me thinking of you. It did? Yeah. It was edited for TV. You know, all the good stuff was cut out and it, it got me thinking of us. Well, two years ago, we started off hot and heavy. Nice, solid R rating on our way to an NC-17. And how things have changed, and... Lately, we're just sort of edited for television. We find out over the course of the movie that this has to do with emotional baggage because of her mother's death. But, um... Really, the main purpose of the scene is just to establish that Sydney's upset about something that's been going on for a while, and B, that Billy wants sex and he ain't getting any. <laughs> Does this dude look like a poor man's Johnny Depp? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I feel like that was a conscious choice to like have the hair like that and everything. Like It's playing directly off of some of the stuff we've seen before. I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just a coincidence, but I feel like they, everybody on set had to have been thinking that and realizing it worked to the movie's advantage a little bit. No, I think they definitely, definitely did that on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and like, I mean, Craven directed Nightmare on Elm Street. Craven directed Scream. In Nightmare on Elm Street, a character played by Johnny Depp 
climbs in through a second story bedroom window to visit his girlfriend who was played by an attractive actress in her early 20s. So like, they're basically just, he's, it's him referencing himself more than anything else. Which, <laughs> which kind of happens a lot in this movie. Right. And, and it's cool. Yeah. I, I think it could have been annoying maybe if it wasn't Wes Craven. Yeah, it could have been. And they borderline, borderline do too much of it, but they found just the right quantity where it's not, it's not over the top. Also, this is before that was really cool. Yeah. Right? It's true. It's true. And I remember this movie became such a big deal that it was being written about in magazines, everything like from Starlog to Fangoria, almost every movie that was a magazine was about movies. And, and, Craven's cameo in the Freddy outfit later in the movie was like the thing everyone fucking loved the most. Everyone was going apeshit about that. (laughs) Steve, we're going to go into more tangents here, but I mean, what was the state of horror movies in the 90s? Uh, Almost dead, which is part of why I I think Craven ultimately decided to come back. It's part of why Kevin Williamson wrote this movie. He had a love for horror movies, and he recognized that that the genre was dying. It's not that they were non-existent, but the mid to late '80s and very very early '90s had been a real heyday for horror, especially for. I mean, it really traces back to the late '70s with the first Halloween, but like slasher films, violent horror genre, a lot of Friday the Thirteenth, a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street, a lot of sleepaway camps, a lot of troll, a lot of just dozens of them, and some like the Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth movies spawned all these sequels, been. But yeah, by the mid-90s, it just wasn't happening in the same way. And I think part of the reason was that a lot of younger people who were the main audience, those types of films, they probably appreciated like the original Nightmare as a classic, but they, there was nothing contemporary. There was no horror really for for kids in the, in the you know mid to late teen bracket being made at that point. And this totally changed that. Yeah, I mean, as far, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm not a horror expert, but the slasher movie was basically a dead prospect yeah, ex- by the time this like, movie was made. 100%. I mean, they were still making, or had been relatively recently, had been making sequels to the Nightmare and Friday the 13th movies, but they weren't nearly as big, big a deal as no, they had been. in fact, they were like widely known as like the lesser yeah. of the bunch. Yeah, right? exactly. They were widely regarded as being inferior to the earlier films in the franchise, and I think they were mostly being made... I would argue this film was mostly made for like 16 to 21 year olds. I think it plays really well when you're older than that. But I think that was the primary intended audience where. Isn't it always though? Yeah, always. Well, and that's the thing. I think a lot of those horror sequels that were being made in the early and mid nineties were really marketed at people five to 10 years older than that because they were trying to get people that had been 18 when the first nightmare came out to come back and see the sequel. But yeah. So the next day at school, Dylan, we learn about Sydney and her friends and her past trauma. Kind of gets pieced together. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the characters we meet and like what the backstory is that is alluded to previously. Yeah, so we get like quick glimpses of I would say three characters here before we meet the full group at a scene at a fountain, which comes a little bit later on down the down the road. But uh, we meet Tatum, who's Sydney's best friend. She is. A bit more fiery than Sydney, I would say, and I think she also is just a fun character to watch. I, I think like her performance, uh, Rose McGowan, is, is just very fun in this movie. One of the more fun characters in the movie. Um, you get a quick glimpse of her, who kind of fills Sydney in on the whole thing um, that happened the night before. Sydney didn't know. Uh, we get a quick glimpse of Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, and you're already getting some bad vibes from her as just the aggressive reporter type. And then we get quick glimpses of well, actually two characters. 
uh, we meet Dewey very briefly, as well as uh, the Fonz himself, Henry Winkler, as the principal. Uh, when mm-hmm. Sydney goes to, I don't know if interrogate, be interrogated is the right word, but the police are kind of surveying everyone in this school, and everybody's alluding to the fact that something happened in the past uh, to Sydney's mom, and we haven't gotten the full details. I'd say that whole story is kind of parsed out in three different ways. Like, first, we just find out here something happened to her mom. We don't know what. You mentioned Principal Fonzie, and I, I love Henry Winkler, dude. Like, <laughs> at the time this movie came out, I was like super into Happy Days. Like, that was one of my favorite childhood shows, even though it was like older. You know, I was watching it on reruns, and uh, seeing him just made me happy as a kid. Seeing him die, <laughs> I don't want to say it made me sad, but you know, I like seeing him on screen. I think this was a little bit of a, like. John Travolta's career never actually died, but it got really slow during the late 80s and early 90s, and a lot of the movies he was in were were not very well regarded, and then um, he got put in Pulp Fiction, and it completely revived his career. I I think this, to a lesser degree, was kind of that moment for Winkler. Not that people had forgotten him or that he wasn't working. He'd been working. But, like, I I think he was someone that had been a big star to, like, more our parents' generation. And only kids that grew up watching Happy Days really had a connection to him, which wasn't a lot of our generation, I don't yeah. think. And and all of a sudden he was in Scream and I like people were like, wow, this guy's great. And he, he ended up appearing in a lot more content after that. I think that and his lawyer character in Arrested Development really, really helped keep him around. Yeah. And uh. I don't think that was planned as interesting because like he did not want to be in any of the marketing. He wasn't on the poster. Like he didn't really want people to know he was in this movie. I, I think he was quoted of something just saying like he didn't want to take away from all the new people in the castle all the young actors so it's interesting that he kind of just like showed up to this movie he didn't want to really do anything to take away from it and instead comes comes away as one of the best side characters honestly yeah i mean and further to your point i agree with you that that, like he really only appears in something like three or four scenes and i think almost all yeah, and I think almost all of them, if not all of them, are just in his office. Mm-hmm. So like, he really doesn't have a huge presence in the movie, but he's he's a, a nice addition. For yeah. That. I mean, this movie was made on a very small budget, uh, I'd say. $15 million. And it, I think a lot of that is because they're not getting huge named actors to be the leads, right? Like, they were mm-hmm. yeah. somewhat known. Right, I think Nev Campbell was on a TV show, one of those teen party shows. of five. Is that I think the one? She was on party of five. I think one. that was her. Yeah, and she was she had a lot of popularity on that. She was probably the most widely popular of the maybe maybe her and Jamie Kennedy probably the most widely popular of that. I mean, Jamie Kennedy was he had done Romeo and Juliet, but yeah. by the when he got cast for this, he was still actively filming that, so he wasn't known right. for Romeo and Juliet. No, yet. here's what I knew him from: an episode of VR Troopers. On one episode. God, I forgot about that show. Yeah, you know, some people knew who Matthew Lillard was. Again, he'd only really done mostly small stuff prior to that, aside from Hackers, but he had, he had been around. This is long before the Matthew Lillard uh, meme, the, the Scooby Shaggy Doo phase. Meme. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. You can see the hints of Shaggy in this performance, though, right? I feel like. You start to see it, and it's like, yes, I, can, I, I see where this career path is headed. Scooby Doo, you turned into a freaky monster. Ah! 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 
my opinion, his parts in this movie, Hackers, and Salt Lake City Punk. Yeah. Are, I mean, not only three of his best, three of my favorite movies, but also those three parts are way more memeable than, than fucking Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I don't know, man. People love Scooby-Doo. I gotta say, I like the Why? Scooby-Doo memes. See? I like the Shaggy memes, God. yeah. <laughs> So later on, after all the high school, after we get to meet the side characters that we're going to be spending some time with throughout the movie, Sydney's at home alone. Her dad out of town. She gets the call. Yeah, that was the other thing. The one other scene where Billy cries, climbs into her window was really there's a moment where her father comes into the bedroom and reminds her he's going to be out of town. It was the one other thing that scene was for. So, yeah, and you're right now. Fast forward. He's gone. Nice try, Randy. Tell Tatum to hurry up, okay? Bye now. If you hang up on me, you'll die just like your mother. Do you want to die, Sydney? Your mother sure didn't. This is where we find out that Sydney is really the next target, right? So we're going to be spending the rest of the movie with the killer trying to kill her, and this is the first attempt. I think you're right, but like... I would I wouldn't say she's the I would say she's the primary among several because they get to a handful of other people on the way to her like they make a point you know and, and I, I kind of do want to bring up some of that I'm gonna save it All right but I have questions that maybe right. you guys can help me answer about that just in terms of the storytelling and why things happen the way they do but I think the thing that's interesting for me about Sydney being attacked is that it really shows the realism of a guy wearing a mask that obscures your vision. And long flowing robes that you're going to trip over trying to kill you, right? Yeah. Because this guy is fucking, it's like he's moving on ice. Like he's slipping all over the place. <laughs> right. He's like missing. And they don't try to make it out as if somehow he's he's like some kind of super assassin or super killer, you know? It's, right. It's just like he's just basically a fumbling teenager in a ghost costume. <laughs> what he has is speed. Yeah. That's what he has compared to someone like Michael Myers. Right. He has the speed and, and there's two of them. So they can they can do that that trap shit like what Dylan was talking about where you know they, they get you going one way and it turns out the other one's just at the other doorway you right. know like <laughs> except for when one of them needs an alibi and they say like they weren't there that night you know right. yeah with the exception of that particularly but definitely I mean it, it's funny to me now it was parodied in Scary Movie which takes away from the funniness but just like how much this guy like falls down and shit you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he gets hit, and you hear him go like, ah! Like, yeah. right? <laughs> There's one moment... I guess we can just mention the moment now, because you brought the subject up. There's one moment later in the film, which we'll get to, where Sydney's trying to escape. She ends up stealing the costume and hiding in a closet. She pops out of the closet with an umbrella and stabs Billy in the chest with it to try to get away from him. No, she pops out and she starts spinning it. And he goes, what is this supposed to do? Hypnotize me? And she goes, no, just give you a splitting headache. <laughs> right. Well, she does prod him with the end of it. There is a moment where she... and, and part Steve, of, you're supposed to get my Batman Returns Well, jokes. it is a Batman Returns <laughs> joke. I know it's the Penguin. Anyway, go on. <laughs> but anyway, um, when they shot that moment, Skeet Ulrich is playing Billy, but they, they had a stuntman put on the ghost costume in lieu of having Nev Campbell do it. And Skeet had a pad on his chest and the stuntman was supposed to hit the pad with the tip of the umbrella. And they got so active during the scene that the stuntman missed the pad and hit Skeet's chest. 
And Skeet Ulrich has a scar that's held together under the skin with wire from a heart surgery he had as a teenager. And the tip of the umbrella actually hit the stitching underneath his skin. And it hurt so badly, he actually yelled and cringed because it, it, it actually hurt him. And Craven liked the reaction so much, he kept it. So the shot they use in the movie is Skeet Ulrich actually reacting from being hit like that. And to, I think to your point, they, they did a lot of that. And it's great. It works for the movie. <laughs> you think it's great that Steve Orich was, or that Skeet Orich <laughs> Steve was Orich? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, no, I don't that think it's great wor- that he was actually injured. But no, was, you said it. It's on record. Well, yeah, I, like, no, those, those <laughs> kinds of moments are great for functionality. There's, there's, there's a few fun ones. There's a scene in Django Unchained where Leo DiCaprio's character crushes a wine glass broken in his hand. <clears throat> that wasn't supposed to happen. It actually broke in his hand. It cut the shit out of his hand. And instead of screaming and dropping the glass, Leo just went on with the scene. And Scorsese liked it so much he kept it. There's a scene at the beginning of Apocalypse Now where Martin Sheen punches a mirror. And he wasn't supposed to actually punch it, but he did. He punched it as hard as he could. The mirror shatters. It got glass, so much glass in his hand, they had to take him to the hospital afterward. And he just went on with the scene. And Coppola liked it so much, they just kept it. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know if you know this, but Viggo Mortensen on Lord of the Rings kicked a helmet <laughs> yes! and it broke this. his spine. <laughs> yeah, he's in a wheelchair now because of that. Right? Wasn't that, I swear to God, he's been injured a bunch of times. I think he was injured on that movie about the horse, too. Yes. Hidalgo, Hidalgo yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Sydney does get away from her uh, would-be killer and... Basically, the boyfriend shows up right after. Now, we later learn that he is the killer, right? So this is not a good move on his part. No, very poor idea. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because if, if he's innocent, then it's it makes sense that he would show up right at that time and a cell phone would just happen to fall out of his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is... Okay, let's talk about this moment for just a second because this is one of those moments that worked for that time and that they, they couldn't at all do now. Because... 96 was just late enough that a lot of people had cell phones, but a huge percentage of people still didn't. Mm-hmm. They were still kind of expensive to own. The phones were really basic. They, they, In some cases, they were charging people like 30, 40 cents a minute to use the service. And there was still, even as late as 96, there was still this prevalent opinion that like, 99% of people didn't need a cell phone and that it was fucking ridiculous to think you needed a phone with you all the time. I held that opinion for a very long time. So, so did I. And if I'm being honest with you, despite the fact that I've had one for years, I still think it's true. 98% of the communication I have via phone could wait until that evening when I'm home. Like, there's there's no reason the majority of the time. It makes life more convenient, but you really don't need it. Anyway, but yeah, so it was just the right timing for this. If they if they'd made it more than three or four years after that, I can remember into two thousand or so things being like that. But yeah, it was still weird in ninety six for an eighteen year old to have a cell phone. It was still legitimate in ninety six for 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 a cop to say why why does a seventeen eighteen year old have a phone? You know, where nowadays it's like what the fuck is wrong with you? I've had a phone since I was four. <laughs> why do you have a cell phone, you fucking psycho? <laughs> right, but but I mean they. This is one of the few glitches in the movie that bothers me is like they didn't need to bother asking him really. They could have just run his phone records. Also, they talk about running Billy's cell phone records to prove that he didn't call Sydney, but they never mention running Sydney's home phone records to find out what number called her. 
once you've established that it wasn't Skeetle versus Billy's cell phone, find out what number it was. Every number in the world's registered to somebody. Like, find out who it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it does turn out at the end of the movie that they cloned her dad's cell phone, but they at least would have found out that it was her dad's cell phone number calling. I want to say that this is before, like, shows like Law & Order have really gotten into the public's minds, and we, like, are now running right. our own little investigations as we watch a horror movie in our head because right. we've seen like a lot of cop shows and it's shit. It's true. I think I, I caught it at the time, but part of it was like, there were definitely some instances at home where my parents were looking at the phone bill and it's like, who called this, this 900 number? So it's like, you know, <laughs> uh. lonely. Are you <sighs> the hottest Jedi's in the galaxy? are waiting to talk to you. But it doesn't stop there. My friends want to chat too. No, job is not here right now. <laughs> you want me to put my lightsaber where? No. I knew it. You know, look, you're 12, you get curious. A lot of the time, I didn't even care what they had to say. Seriously, at 12, I was just like, I'm going to call 1-800-BOOBIES and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Right. I mean, speaking of technology, Sydney gets on, like, AIM with 911. (laughs) Yeah, she's got, like, like a... A relay, like an IRC chat or something open. Yeah. With nine, which is like, I mean, it's a thing, it exists, but what normal person was using that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> she had that ready to go. Yeah, that's the thing that was like up and everything. It's not like she had to open a special terminal or do anything. It's just like, oh, I have this open channel, the 911. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right. Dylan, maybe you can kind of take us through where things play out next in terms of story. I mean, we do get to meet Dewey and Gail and kind of see them, but I mean, uh, we're back at school basically. And uh, well, she gets attacked at home. Oh, we talked about that, I guess. But she gets attacked at home, waiting for Tatum. Right. Her yeah. father's out of town. She's at home. She gets attacked, and then when Tatum gets there, after she's she sent for the police on her computer, Courtney Cox's character, the reporter, is back, and. I'm going to show this to you. The audience can't see it, but here we um, go. When I think it's this scene, it's either this scene or after Sydney gets attacked at the school, but one of the two, Courtney Cox's character shows up wearing a woman's professional suit. Um, that's kind of a, almost a pale neon yellowish green color. Yeah. It's very ugly. Dude. It is very ugly, but she should have been fucking April O'Neil, dude. Oh my God. That shot looks just like April O'Neil. She does. They could have cast her in that suit to be April O'Neil and it would have worked perfectly. There were no Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles projects until another 10 years. It's true. And it ended up being Megan Fox, who at least is way hotter. Not a very good actress, but you know. (laughs) Settle down, Steve. All right, I'm sorry. (laughs) So Dylan, maybe you can kind of tell us like how the story goes, uh, we see them again at school. There's another attack in the school. Arthur Fonzarelli does some Fonzie shit. Yeah, so uh, this is where you kind of get the second big piece of information regarding uh, what happened to Sydney's mom, which is that Sydney confronts Gail, and they kind of just have like a little bit of a, a battle of evidence of when Sydney 
apparently put this guy away for having raped and murdered her mom, which is this guy Cotton Weary, in a very, very brief uh, Lev Schreiber cameo. Sabretooth. Classic Sabretooth move right there. That's not classic Sabretooth. It's a Sabretooth. <laughs> Do you even know how to kill me, Corey? I'm going to chop your goddamn head off. Anyway, go <laughs> on. Work, actually. There's like two quick uh, Dewey moments I wanted to mention before this. When Sydney spends the night with Tatum, the voice calls Sydney at Tatum's house and Dewey answers it and says hello like at the end. And that's supposed to be this kind of stinger at the end of that scene. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. I know the whole MO of this movie is trying to make everybody out to be suspicious to some degree. That one feels slightly too on the nose, because now that you know Dewey has nothing to do with it, it's like very hard to go back and rationalize that part. But I do really like uh, when these reporters start hounding uh, Sydney, and you just hear Dewey in the background saying, like, she just wants to get her education as she's going into the school. <laughs> it's a line I really like. Um, but another part of this whole idea that's so compelling is that Gail is actually right. Like, obviously, you're on Sydney's side. Like, she knows what she saw. It's cotton weary and everything. But by the end of this movie, you know that Gail's, you know, crazy theory that Sydney refers to it as is the correct one, which is that cotton is innocent and that there's somebody else out there who's actually been doing this. I think that's a really compelling point to this movie that it kind of like it takes what the protagonist and there's a completely false belief from the protagonist that you still can't help but support. So. Upon rewatch, every time I, I find that whole debate they have outside of the school very interesting. Your mother's murder was last year's hottest court case. Somebody was going to write a book about it. Right, and it had to be you with all your lies and bullshit theories. What is your problem? You got what you wanted. Cotton Weary's in jail. They're going to gas him. A book is not going to change that. Do you still think he's innocent? Your testimony put him away. It doesn't really matter what I think. During the trial, you did all those stories about me. You called me a liar. I think you falsely identified him, yes. Have you talked to Cotton? Many times. And has his story changed? Not one word. He admits to having sex with your mother, but that's all. He's lying. She never would have touched him. He raped her, and then he butchered her. Her blood was all over his coat. He was drunk that night. He left his coat at your house after your mother seduced him. I saw him leave wearing it. No, you saw someone leave wearing that coat. The same someone who planted it in Cotton's car, framing him. No. Cotton murdered my mother. You're not so sure anymore, are you? Yeah, you want to believe Sydney. You want to believe that this reporter is just an overzealous bitch who's trying to make a career for herself by claiming that this guy was falsely imprisoned. And yeah. yeah, you're right. It turns out she was right the whole time. Yeah, so they're playing with another character trope of like the reporter who's going to get her come up into the end. Like, no, she's actually right and she'll prove useful in the end. She's just very <laughs> annoying temporarily. <laughs> I think it does speak to the criminal justice system in general in terms of like there's a heinous crime. Right. It's looked into heavily by the police force. They want to close this case. They want to find who they think is the person and say, we caught him. It's over. It's done. It's especially convenient for them if they find somebody whose skin is darker than white. Exactly. But in addition to that, I feel like there's too much like and this is just from a lot of crime documentaries. There's too much. We found someone we think is the person. Let's try to make it so it is the person. Yeah. Um, they want to like put someone away a little bit too quickly, in my opinion, in some cases. And again, just based off a lot of Netflix documentaries I've watched <laughs> where it's like, we were sure it was this guy. 
It wasn't that guy. Yeah, the, 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 to make a killer stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very interesting how that happens. There's a lot of those cases. People spend years in jail for shit they didn't do. Yeah. Steve, what do you think about these kids running around with a with a scream mask at school? <laughs> An early indicator of next Halloween. Right. <laughs> That's the one part I might... I, well, not the one, but it's one part I might take a small amount of issue with. Like, I believe... I believe at a school with several hundred teenagers that there might be one or two kids who were shitty enough to do that. Well, there were. There were two kids that were right. shitty enough to do that. But it seemed, they make it seem like the whole school is like way into it. And, you know, I, I think if you're 16, 17, 18 years old and you live in a relatively small town and somebody is like breaking into people's homes and murdering people your age – you know, sure, you're not going to take things with an adult seriousness. You're still a teenager. But I don't think even at 16, I think most of those kids would be way too worried about being the next one on the list to be running around in ghost masks going, ha ha, someone got gutted, you know? Yeah, it might not be the most realistic part, but I feel like in the context of a slasher, that's goal is to be fairly self-aware. Like this is a fun way to take it, like that people are almost celebrating the fact that this is happening to them, like. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I like that aspect. And I especially like how much Stu is just like eating it up when the first guy runs down the hall. He's just like laughing like cra- hysterically like at the idea right. that what they've started is spreading like this. Why are they doing this? Are you kidding me? Look at this place. It's like Christmas. Stupidity leak. Oh, easy. That part I like. Stu and Billy having that sort of reaction works for me because they're the killers anyway. So, of course, the two of them aren't going to have a serious reaction. They're going to think the whole thing's fucking great. It's just better cover for them. It makes Mm -hmm. it that much harder to figure out who the real person is. I can see where you're coming from. I'm going to slightly disagree with you. I think it does bother me a little bit, but, but valid point. I think also... There was supposed... There's a scene coming up here where Sydney gets a, ends up getting attacked in the high school bathroom. Yeah, and, one of my least favorite scenes, probably. Right, and I would agree with you, too. The only real catch-all there for me is that the way the film was supposed to be set up, Sydney was going to get attacked and then go to the principal, and her being attacked was supposed to be the reason Fawns cut school, because he, he doesn't want everyone to be there if the killer's on the campus, and... They ended up cutting that part, and they made it seem like the only reason he cut school was because kids were doing this mask shit. Oh. You know, and it, like, I don't know. I'm not sure yeah. that works for me, but anyway. How long do you think Stu was in the bathroom in full scream killer garb? That's a good question. Now, so you do, do you think that's Stu? Because when that ghost face comes out of the stall, there's no weapon. You can watch it in slow-mo, and you'll see it's just open hand. So I always thought that was just another troll. <laughs> I mean, I... Oh. It, I... I thought that was possible for a long time as well, but I, the last few years, I've started to think it must have been Stuart Billy because the he makes a sincere attempt to attack Sydney. Like at least that's the way it seems to me in the scene. That like it's he's not just there to scare her and run out. Like he's really trying to hurt her, and was maybe even hoping that he'd get to pull off a kill in the bathroom. So it always seemed to me like it had to be one of the two of them doing it seriously but i don't i could be wrong about that this does get to like like i was saying earlier though one of my favorite parts of this movie is re-watching it and trying to piece together who's where and who's neither of them like <laughs> i think that's such a great aspect of this movie to like think about scene by scene so i agree with you about that i think uh, uh, skeet ulrich said at one point in an interview years after the movie had come out that he, he always felt it was his character billy that kills tatum in the garage later you know? interesting <laughs> yeah yeah 
So unfortunately, the principal does get killed. But I, I, yeah. I guess a, before I touch on that, when he confronts the kids that were running around in the ghost face mask, <laughs> yeah. that is a misdirect for him to be the killer, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of people at that point in the film are like, oh, maybe it is the principal. Because he gets kind of violent. He's a very touchy-feely, aggressive kind of guy, yeah. Yeah. You make me so sick. Your entire havoc-inducing, thieving, whoring generation disgusts me. So... Two of your fellow students just savagely murdered. And this is the way that you show your compassion and sensitivity, huh? Let me show you something. You're both expelled. Get out. Come on, Mr. Hembry. It was just a joke. That's not fair. You're absolutely right. It is not fair. Fairness would be to rip your insides out, hang you from a tree so we can expose you for the heartless, desensitized little shits that you are. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know, in some ways, in some ways that might have worked, you know, if they'd written it right at the end of the film for him to be the murderer, but I'm glad it wasn't, but yeah. Way the fuck less satisfying if that was the case. That would have been fucking wishcraft all over again. We'll talk about it when we get to the ending, but I'm not sure I agree with you about it being less satisfying, because one, my one complaint about the ending is I find their reasons to be pretty unsatisfying. Okay, But we'll, we'll talk about it. I do think there's another misdirect in the bathroom, too, because they make a very clear point of showing you that boots descend from the toilet with and put the robe on. And then later on, we see the sheriff with very, very similar boots crushing like yeah. a cigarette butt. So like, this is what I'm saying. They take like just it, it only takes 10 seconds of total runtime. And you've got another character who you just have a slight doubt about in your head. And I think that's a really great aspect of, of the movie. A hundred percent. And the, the, the thing with the boots is something people miss. Like that was an intentional misdirect to be sure. And like, yeah, you're right. That, that just that little bit of effort yeah. can get you kind of confused. And I think, I, I think that's one of the great parts about this movie is it's sort of a whodunit in addition to being a slasher. Like a lot of the time, certainly, right. A lot of the time, like you don't know what the killer's motives are, but in the, like the, Friday the 13th films, right? Like you always know which person the killer is. You may not know why he's doing it, but you know which person the killer is. And this, it's like, we don't even know who's doing this. Mm. It could be Fred the janitor. Right? Could be Fred. Oh, you mean Freddy? (laughs) Yeah. Damn shits. What'd you call me? Not you, Fred. That becomes a very common theme, I'm realizing now, in a lot of my favorite horror movies. Like, you look at this, The Thing, Black Christmas, there's, like, a real doubt about who's doing the killing or who's a thing and stuff like that. I'm starting to realize maybe that's one of the thing that, things that most intrigues me about some of, my, some of my favorites, is that whodunit aspect. I couldn't agree with you more. And The Thing is so fucking brilliant that way. It's so, I mean, the creature effects are amazing as well, but it's just, like... It's such a perfect job of we don't even know which one of us is going to end up being it next. And yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's good filmmaking to make the audience wonder in that way. It doesn't even have to be horror, right? (laughs) Because a lot of action movies also have a villain reveal. Like, oh my God, it was this guy. He was my friend. Right. Right. Let's take White House down, for example. Right, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember how quickly we realized that James James was his opening scene? James Woods is the villain. Yeah. Like, you can tell right away. Well, I mean, this is part of the problem with certain actors, right? You can't cast James Woods in something without you immediately <laughs> assuming. It's the same thing with Nick Cage. If they'd shown you Nick Cage three minutes into the movie, you'd know immediately he's either A, the villain, or B, the guy that's going to save the day. It can only be one of the two. <laughs> but yeah, there's also, there's a moment after he kicks the kids out of his office, he sees the janitor, Freddy the janitor, and 
of the fawns, the principal's a little freaked out. He he opens up the a wardrobe, a closet in his in his office and checks his hair in the mirror, which is which is a Fonzie moment. It's what he used to do is Fonzie. And if you look hard enough, there's a black leather jacket hanging in the wardrobe. It actually is Fonzie's jacket. Just a fun little reference there as well. Damn. All right. Nice. When they see Wes Craven dressed up like Freddy, Craven actually pulled real costume, real wardrobe from the original Nightmare on Elm Street out of his collection and wore it. So that's real clothing from the movie. Which I think it's kind of fun. There's there's a couple, there's one other one of my favorite references in the movie since the thing came up. They're having a conversation about horror movies, and I think it's Sydney says, uh, "You know, if I was wrong about Cotton Weary, then the killer's still out there." The duck other said, "You're starting to sound like some West Carpenter flick or something." It's confusing John Carpenter and Wes Craven's names, <laughs> you know, which I thought was great. Yeah, <laughs> that works quite well, I think. Right. And again, like we talked about earlier, could have been lame, right? If right. Like, if like done a little bit too much, uh, making quotes like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a fine line between like satire and full on parody. And I feel like this keeps it in the former in like the best way. It does. It rides that line nicely. So here's my question in terms of story. Why does the killer kill the principal? This is a great question. I was going to ask this question as well. <laughs> yeah. So, do you want do you want an like a guess from story perspective? Or do you want the actual reason? Because there's an actual reason, and it's not story really. Oh, uh, let's, well, let's hear both. All right. Well, the actual reason is when Bob and Bob Weinstein was looking over the script, he realized that there hadn't been a murder in thirty pages, and demanded that somebody get killed, and they ended up picking the principal. <laughs> That's that's literally why it happened. There is a very large gap, isn't there? Because it's not until it's not since the opening right. scene, right? He's the second one to go, so it is a very long yeah gap. And and yeah. you know, one page in screenplay is estimated as a rule of thumb. One you estimate one page is one minute. It doesn't always actually work out that way exactly, but so thirty pages is approximately thirty minutes of movie time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, Bob Weinstein figured out there hadn't been a murder in thirty pages and told Williamson to have somebody killed. So the principals who got it. That's really why it happened. Okay. <laughs> and then you have an in-universe theory as well? It's not really a theory so much. It's just I think they needed something there anyway to help keep driving the tension forward. Because otherwise, you get to a point where it's been long enough since the killer did anything that people start wondering if he went away. Well, I have and one having... more story reason. Sorry, I didn't go mean to interrupt. It. So, but No, I, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, uh, a big part of it is the drama to it of they then hang him from the... Uh, goalposts of the football field and that's what yeah. drives away everybody from the house at the end to leave it to just Stu and and billy being able to corner sydney with randy still in the mix obviously but okay. i think that was actually i think that might have been some looking ahead by Stu and billy which i wouldn't put past them because they've been such like master planners based on movie plots no you're 100 percent right one thing they were still struggling with with the script at that point was why to get most of those kids to leave the party and when weinstein asked that the principal be murdered to add for the script it it, it, it did this is even noted in some of the behind the scenes stuff it, it gave them a reason to have the kids leave the party because they could then leave to go see the body so you're 100 percent right they that was that was purposeful There is a scene with Randy, who's Jamie Kennedy, and Stu, who's Matthew Lillard, at a video store. I love this part. Very fun part. This is like a film geek thing. It is. But it's before, like, this was so prevalent. It was before movie podcasts like this (laughs) came out, right? Like, I can... before we all declared ourselves as film experts and had a platform (laughs) to jump on. Why'd the cops let him go, smart guy? Because obviously they don't watch enough movies. 
This is standard horror movie stuff. Prom night revisited, man. Yeah? Why would he want to kill his own girlfriend? There's always some stupid bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. That's the beauty of it all. Simplicity. Besides, if it gets too complicated, you lose your target audience. Well, what's his reason? Maybe Sydney wouldn't have sex with him. <laughs> you know, I think it's her father. <laughs> Why can't they find her pops, man? Because he's probably dead. His body will come popping up in the last reel somewhere. Eyes gouged out, fingers cut off, teeth knocked out. See, the police are always off track with this shit. If they'd watch prom night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it, a very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. I, I imagine Randy being the type of 90s era rental clerk that would encourage people to buy a player and rent Laserdiscs because they had commentary and stuff on them. Like, I think he's that type of movie. Game. You don't think he was pushing for DVDs? DVD wasn't out yet. Oh, okay. Didn't exist yet. Well, there yeah. was a little a little war, right, between uh, you cinephiles about which format was going to be the one. Yeah, there was one, you know, look, in fairness, first-gen DVDs that first year were usually not very good. No. And there were a lot of a lot of Laserdisc enthusiasts who had big collections saying, look, these new discs suck. I'm just going to keep what I have. And that remained the case for a couple of years until the quality of the discs got better. One of my favorite to this, one of my favorite Kevin Smith moments in history Kevin Smith did a commentary for a Criterion release of Chasing Amy. And oh, yeah. at the beginning of the commentary, he specifically notes that they were recording it for a Laserdisc release because DVD wasn't out yet. And he actually specifically says, fuck DVD. I was going to say, fuck DVD. <laughs> right? I'm so fucking glad that you are aware of that, right? Steve. Chasing Amy is my favorite Kevin Smith movie. Right. And that is how I was aware that there was a DVD and Laserdisc right. or, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It took a while. It took like probably about a part of two years before DVDs really got good enough. And uh, yeah, there's always a whole conversation there. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was definitely a war. And I think he was that because that was Laserdisc. Just real quick. Laserdisc was really an enthusiast's format. Because it was more than just that the video quality was better. Like the video quality was better, the sound quality was better, and you got multiple audio tricks. But like you could have you could have discs with commentary tracks on them. VHS couldn't do that. You could have collections that had the original trailers and behind the scenes and stuff like all this stuff that you wouldn't normally have gotten with with VHS. And a lot of the people that bought Laserdisc were people that cared a little bit about the difference in video quality, but mostly wanted the rest of it. And Criterion releases were invented for the Laserdisc format. There were only ever two VHS Criterions and then they abandoned even working with VHS. So yeah, I mean, Randy seems to me like mid-90s would have been the type of video store clerk who was like, rent the Laserdisc to get the commentary. You know? <laughs> what do you think about Randy, Dylan? I enjoy Randy a lot. I, well, I especially enjoy the dynamic between him and Stu in this scene. It's a good chance to see, see uh, Manic Stu, as I like to call him, just completely losing his mind for no reason, just in a normal, everyday interaction at a video store. Do you think Sid would go out with me? <laughs> no, I don't at all. No. I also just appreciate how Randy is the only one who has it figured out the entire time. Like, he literally says the dad is a red herring, it's Billy. And that's, you know, it's just fun to see the movie guy rise to the top against the other movie guys. Yes. Like, I think that's a funny kind of <laughs> battle going on. I also think it's funny the movies that he holds in his, like, canon of things to reference. Like, Prom Night is not exactly what jumps to mind for oh, most people no. of, like, what to draw, like, the horror formula from. But that seems to be his go-to, which is fun, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I do like the fact that there's a character in the film that tends to see the world through the lens of movies rather than like, this is a dude who doesn't see film as a reflection of life. This is a dude who sees life as a reflection of film. And like, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Considering the villains of the movies do the, do the exact same thing. Like that's billions too. Right. So it's, it's good to have like the positive side and the negative side of that. Absolutely. I don't remember Scream 4 super well, so please Mm. forgive me if I get this wrong, but from what I recall, they tried to, like, take that aspect of it from this movie and flip it to, like, the internet era. So it it was, like, a lot of, like, internet influence. Wasn't the fourth one when Sydney comes back because people were getting killed on the set of the fake movie they're making about her life? I I think we might be mixing up three and four slightly. I've only seen the first two, so I would not have a very good reference to this. Sydney really? is back. I'll say that. And yeah. I remember that in a lot of the movie, she is like the main suspect to be the killer. And you're meant to believe like, oh, my God, Sydney's doing this now. But it's not. Right. Anyway, don't want to go too far into something I don't know that much about. <laughs> Get myself yeah. in trouble again. One little fun note there. the in In that universe... They even talk about it at the end of the first film about there's going to be a movie made about what happened. They call the, they they call the movie within a movie stab, mm-hmm. and uh, they needed some footage for the fake movie uh, that I think they ended up using mostly in the second one or the third one. But Robert Rodriguez directed the the stab content for them. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, right? <laughs> so we're leading up to a big party, right? School's out, can't have school going on with people. Killing the principal and whatnot, running around. Where the fuck is everyone's parents? Good question. Uh, hmm. Like, I mean, <laughs> look, I, you guys probably remember being that age. I remember being 16, 17 frequently and on a weekend or whatever, or day off school, maybe maybe one or two kids. Like, my parents are at work. My parents aren't around. That's cool. It'll happen. But, like, for, for dozens or hundreds of kids, none of them has a parent at home. Like, who cares that they're all running around when there's somebody murdering people their age? Like, they're all just allowed to go to a big party. I don't know. It was supposed to be a small party. It became a big party. It's true. It's true. But like, man, I just can't imagine every single person's parents in that situation being like, yeah, it's fine. Just go out. Like, mm-hmm. I, my parents weren't that concerned. They wouldn't have cared about me going to a party. But under those circumstances, I can definitely see my mother saying, you're not going out right now. Like, It is the riskiest time to go out. It is interesting how somehow all these right? kids managed to get away. I was wondering that. Is yeah. everybody, is this before the curfew or is everybody blatantly ignoring the curfew? Because... Dewey never brings it up, like the one man of the law who's there. So I don't, it's an interesting question. Right. He, he No, the curfew's supposed to be there, and they're all at this one house way after curfew. Nobody seems to care about it as long as they're at this house instead of out. And and Dewey catches one of the kids drinking at this party, and he's like, ha-ha, you're underage, and then lets him keep drinking anyway. And it, like, yeah, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I mean, here's the part that really caught my eye. And this is maybe a throwback to, like, Halloween or something. But before the party, Sydney and her friend are getting supplies at the grocery store, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're shopping. You see the killer <laughs> in the grocery store. So, like, he went into the grocery store in right. this, and he was just kind of, like, hiding behind the fucking Doritos and shit and, like, yeah. looking at him. Nobody sees him. Everybody's Nobody oblivious to this guy crawling around. It's so funny. The thing that Halloween has going for it is that it's on Halloween. Right. Yeah. So a guy in a costume is like acceptable. Yeah. And he's mainly in a car in most of that portion of Halloween. Like he walks around yeah. a little bit. Like there's the famous shot like outside the school, but at least like he's doing some attempt of like staying in the shadows. <laughs> Whereas he's walking through what's 
likely a very well lit convenience store with normal day <laughs> traffic. It is, it is a bit funny. I think it is uh, supposed to kind of misdirect you some more because Dewey just said like I'll be right back or like I'm gonna go to the police station. Then he goes somewhere else. You find out in about 30 seconds he was just getting ice cream. But still, I don't know. Like taking myself out of the fact that I know the ending of this. Dewey is in no way a suspect to me. Yeah, I, that one never sank with me. Like I know, I, I agreed. Yeah, I guess there were a couple of moments where they tried, but even the first time I saw this movie, I'm like, it's definitely not this dude. I don't think he'll kill a man. Uh, you know, he just doesn't seem like the type. Yeah. Will he put his dick in a vacuum cleaner? Yeah, probably. Yes. I bet this dude would hump a jacuzzi. <laughs> you know. I said, don't disturb you. I'm cleaning my room. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, unless it's maybe it's supposed to be a fucking. Uh, Oh shit! What's that character's name? Uh, whatever, whatever the character's name is. Maybe it's supposed to be a usual suspects moment where you find out it's the meek dude at the end and you don't expect it. But like, I doubt it. You know. Oh, the, uh, the Kaiser. Kaiser Soze. There it is. Yeah, yeah, I don't think David Arquette can pull it off in the same way. No. That's the problem. Like, it, just his it's line he delivery. Because he doesn't spend enough time sexually assaulting people in his private life. Yeah, perhaps so. <laughs> uh, no, but is that, is that a thing? No. Anyway, that'll be cut out. <laughs> <laughs> So the big party is like where we spend a lot of this movie. A lot of my memories of this movie are this party because it it takes up so much of the runtime. Yeah, there's 50 minutes left when when we get to that party. It took them something like 21 days, seriously, just to shoot the party segment of this film. They ended up calling it like the crew ended up calling it like the longest party ever, or something like that. They had shirts made up that had some funny name on them. It was it was like the single most difficult part of the whole film for them to make. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, really weird to spend that many days consecutively on this one. They don't even change locations. It's all set in one place. But I think it's really great, right? Cause it is. It's a huge house. There's a lot of people. There's a lot going on. There's enough rooms where people can hide. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but uh, I, I, I really like it a lot. Starting with Tatum's death. Yeah, yeah, in the garage door. She, she is so slight like petite and skinny in real life that she actually kept falling out of the doggy door in the garage and they were doing that i was gonna say she can definitely fit yeah. through that is a little nitpick during that scene i don't tend to think about it too much but like she's yeah. through and then she just kind of stays there yeah yeah i mean most people you'd never believe it but she in real life without an oversized could fit through she actually ended up having to like pin her using screws or something inside the doggy door so she'd stop falling out when they were trying to film the scene like so to expand on that, so Tatum, she goes to the garage by herself, right? Her boyfriend, Matthew Lillard, says, can you go get some beer? And she goes in there. When he purposefully makes a point of leaving the room before he sends her to the garage. He does? Yeah, so. Okay. That's kind of a little clue you don't notice until you mm. really know what's happening. Yeah, I don't think I picked up on that, yeah. yeah he may, It's because it's it, Jimmy Kennedy does the thing where you never say, I'll be right back. Yeah, right. And then he, he you know, I'll be right back. And then he sends her to the beer to get the garage to get the beer mm. I think it's flipped I think the rules comes after Tatum's death unless I'm missing something maybe you're right but he definitely leaves the room for something before he sends her out regardless yeah. that gets to a bigger point which is impressive to me which is for a last 50 minutes that covers all the ground of this one house like it's sequenced very well like it could very easily get kind of stale like alright we've just been in this main living room for a long time or you know, we've just been doing a chase scene for a long time, but it like scatters so many things throughout those last 50 minutes. Like you'll go from a kill to now like a scene of comedy back to a chase scene. Like it's, it's hard to sequence something like that in like such a small location with 
limited characters left to work with by that point. And I, they pull it off extremely well without ever feeling like it's overstaying its welcome at this house. It more just feels like it's building and building. Definitely. Well said. Do you guys think Tatum's death is a motivated death, or do you think it's more for us, the audience? Because what Scream doesn't do up until now is give us creative horror movie deaths. Right. This one does stand out in a different way than the rest. I mean, I think that Stu and Billy established pretty well in the end that all of them, except potentially Sydney, were just ancillary. Because the reality is she's the one they want, or at least she's the one that Billy wants. I think Stu's just in it to get to kill whoever he gets to kill. A peer pressure, he says so. <laughs> yeah, peer pressure, and he's the one without the motive. But, like, you know, Billy's, at the end, I mean, he may enjoy doing it to other people as well. He might be that psychotic. But, like, Billy's Billy's main target has always been Sydney. The end game is to get Sydney. So, like... He's I mean, on a revenge quest. Yeah. A, a quest of revenge that he's concocted in his own mind. In his own mind, yeah. I mean, and so, like... I mean, either case, regardless, either either Stu killed her just for shits and giggles or Billy did it as, as a matter of convenience. Like, but yeah, I mean, there was no real purpose for like there was no motive specifically to Tatum. To like, we got to kill her. It is a very memorable death, though, it and it's cool. It's like I feel like it's one of those things that almost everyone that's seen an automatic garage door open like thinks about like, man, could this thing kill me somehow? No. Not like they would never, they had to do all kinds of, like they're not strong enough to actually lift a person's body up. They had to rig it. It would never actually happen like that. But yeah. So now that we know the answer is no. Right. <laughs> they could, the, those motors can barely lift the door, let alone the weight of a human body. I do appreciate, there's like one little moment. It's, it shouldn't be funny to me, but it is. But after the kill is done, Ghostface is just standing on the garage stairs and he just kind of looks like obviously blankly because it's just a mask, but he's just like looking at the garage door and then, like, without turning his head, he just, like, does a little side shuffle, like, back into the kitchen. And it makes me laugh every time. I don't know why. Like, it shouldn't because we just witnessed a horrific death and then it, he's, like, getting away with it. But he just kind of stands there and then just, like, scoots back inside and it just makes no, me laugh. No, you're right. It, it's great. It's also the reason I think that Skeet Ulrich was wrong when he insisted that Billy must have been the one that killed Tatum because that's a stew move. Yeah, I would think this is a stew. Stew's the crazy one. That's what stew would do. He'd dance away. Like... There is good body language, right? Because yeah. it's almost like he double takes that death. He like looks at it and he's like surprised for a second. <laughs> Maybe he just it's because the face always looks surprised. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It is funny though how we can read that kind of emotion into just like this blank mask because yeah, it definitely is a funny little touch. Like if he was speaking, he would have said like, oh shit, that was crazy. <laughs> That's really not how you know that part works. It's 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 part of why V for Vendetta came off so well as you don't see Hugo Weaving's face the entire time and yet that character manages to be engaging like yeah a lot of that is a great voice performance it's true the fantastic voice performance yeah. yeah Billy does show up to the party he wasn't really invited but uh, he is more or less proven to be innocent at this point in the movie, right? Like, he's his, all his alibis are kind of working out in his favor. Yeah. Yeah, I would say most everything checks out the, the stories he's concocted. And he goes up to the room with Sydney, and I guess they break one of the movie rules. They have sex. Big no-no. Yeah, he finally gets his sex. <laughs> Randy says, right after they go upstairs, that he's going to go check on them. So that's another, like, maybe it's Randy moment. 
Yeah, that's a weird part because then the next time we see Randy, he's just watching Halloween with everybody. I've always wondered about that. Like, <laughs> do you think he just put his ear to the door? Not really the best touch. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, to that comment, it's difficult to catch, but the bedroom door is actually open while Sydney and Billy are in there, and there's supposed you're supposed to notice. Craven backed this up, so did Skeet Ulrich. You're supposed to notice Billy occasionally glancing at the door to make sure that it is open because he's he's expecting Stu to come in. Right. So right. that's the whole idea is really like, I mean, he's been bugging her to get sex the entire movie, but at the end of it, this is really a setup to get her alone in a room. Good point. There's a thing that happens in movies that usually bugs me, but I'll give it a pass in this movie. And that's when people are talking about the events that have happened and someone says, well, this isn't a movie. This is real life. Yeah, exactly. It's like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs when she keeps having flashbacks of her dead father. But this is life. This isn't a movie. Sure it is, Sid. I often really fucking hate that in movies. Right. <laughs> but I think it's okay in this one. And, and Sydney says that, but later on we get like, the rules from Jamie Kennedy. I don't know if we covered those explicitly, but like he's very like colorful and uh, enthusiastic and Jamie Kennedy esque. Right. Yes. In his like, these are the rules of surviving a horror movie thing. It's like true, like old school movie geek shit. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> That's why she always outsmarted the killer in the big chase scene at the end. Only virgins can do that. Don't you know the rules? What rules? You don't, Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Uh, have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no no! Big no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Oh! You see, you push the laws and you end up dead. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife. Dylan, maybe you can kind of tell us what we see happen with Billy and uh, how that unfolds. After their uh, sex scene, which is intercut with uh, Halloween in a very funny way, Billy is just kind of talking to Sydney. They have kind of just this... I, I honestly forget exactly what they're talking about, but Sydney's kind of vulnerable, saying, like, you know what, I'm starting to realize, like, I have all this baggage, like you mentioned earlier, Corey, and, and how it's really, uh, like, restricting me and, and everything. And, like, she's starting to warm up to Billy a little bit. There's also this seed of a doubt, though, at the very end, after they have sex, where she's like who did you uh, call at the police station? And he was saying, uh, my dad. And she was like, no, the sheriff called your dad. And there's there's like this doubt creeping back in, basically at the worst time, considering she's now alone with him in a room. But what is she insinuating there? I know, I don't know if she's thinking he's guilty again or if that like she's just worried he's still hiding things from him, from her. I don't really know because obviously she trusts him enough to be up here in this room. It's a, it's a weird little going back on like the last five minutes because he couldn't have called her with the voice changer because he was right. in jail right yeah 
Oh, yes. Okay, I see. Like, yeah, when, when they call Dewey and Tatum's house. Like, so that had to have been Stu. Yeah. At that point. But, yeah, so I don't know. I guess this is a weird little moment where I'm not sure exactly what Sydney thinks could it, it could be. Like, like, she might think it's Billy when in reality that call wasn't Billy. So, I don't know. Strange moment. But ultimately that scene culminates in Ghostface sneaking up behind Billy and ostensibly stabbing him in the chest multiple times. The more you rewatch this, you realize that when Billy turns around, he like very dramatically like he's in a Shakespeare play, says like, Sydney, no, and then falls to the ground. <laughs> but you're supposed to believe at that point that, all right, Billy is out, he was innocent, and he's dead. And Sydney runs away, and so starts a very frantic, house-sprawling chase sequence. Yeah. What do you think about the tension kind of moving forward, Steve, with uh, Ghostface? Like, he's back in the picture. He's kind of taking people out. Some of them real, some of them maybe not. But what do you think? For the most part, I like it. It's There's a lot of energy and a lot of tension and a lot of that will she get away and then what's going to happen to these other ancillary characters, Dewey and, and, and what, Gail, the reporter, get involved in their mm-hmm. own way. They're out looking for a car. Like I said, it's impressive how they intercut all these different threads of characters going different places, doing different things in a pretty seamless way. Yeah, I, I do like that. Yeah, Gail and Dewey initially walk away from the party to go investigate a report of a car that's been ditched in the woods. And when Dewey realizes that it's Sydney's father's car, they head back to the house just in time, really, to catch Sydney being chased by the murderers. I, I If I'm going to complain, I might have cut two minutes out of it. Not much, but it, it goes on. It goes on, I think, a minute or two longer than it really needs to. I think they could have culminated that chase. It wasn't It wasn't that I found any part of it to be bad. I just think they drew it out a little longer than they really needed to. Uh, do we get shot? You're supposed to believe or stabbed. One of stabbed. the two. Stabbed, yeah, yeah, I think there's a knife in his back. Yeah. And there's a couple of little moments before that. I mean, we see Jamie Kennedy watching Halloween saying, watch out, Jamie, watch out as yeah. Ghostface. That sneaks up behind him, which has to be a different Ghostface than who's chasing Sydney at the moment, so I don't know which is which at that point. But, yeah, I mean, well, I guess I guess it's Billy, so now I'm... Conf- I guess Billy pretends to die, goes downstairs to kill Randy, and then goes back upstairs for when Sydney comes back in. I'm not entirely sure, but... Yeah, maybe, it's a maybe, I, maybe it's all Stu. Uh, there's also the cameraman. I don't know. We haven't alluded to the cameraman very much during this podcast. Yeah, that's true. Gail's got a camera guy who's been out in the van. They've got a hidden camera set up inside the house, and they're watching a feed from inside the van to see what happens. He actually initially sees... Well, I, I think that Sydney ends up in the truck with him. And the two of them see that Ghostface is coming up behind Jamie, but then they realize that the video feed's on a 30-second delay, so by the time they get into the house to do anything about it, it'll be too late. And uh, then the camera guy eats it. He gets his throat slit from behind. That was another scene they had to trim. His death was supposed to be way more violent than that. Um, I mean, it's it's quick, but it's brutal. It, it is. It was supposed to be worse? Yeah. It was supposed to be even worse. It's supposed to be, and they made, they made uh, Craven trim a little bit out of it. It might be for the better. I think if that movie had been too gory, it might have taken away from what was good about the rest of it. But yes, you're right. Uh, Dewey goes into the house to investigate what's happening. You don't see it happen, but he obviously gets stabbed because the next time you see him, he's coming out to the front door and then he collapses uh, with a knife in his back. He was supposed to be dead. The script originally called for him to be dead. In fact, I'm pretty sure the first rough cut of the film that they showed to audiences, the test cut, did have him dying. And they found that people liked his character so much, they ended up not deciding not to kill him. 
It's funny because the gale falls on his body at one point, and he, he's supposed to be dead, so he looks dead, not unconscious. Gale tries to shoot Billy and Stu. We haven't talked about that. She ends up with a gun, comes to the house, tries to shoot Billy, and then can't when it turns out the safety is off. And that's kind of what builds up to the way the movie ends. Yes. The, well, the safety is on. The safety's on, I mean. Yeah, she can't fire the gun, so Billy knocks her out temporarily and takes the gun from her. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's all pretty good. It's all pretty good. My, my, my. We'll talk about the motives momentarily. My two big complaints here is I think they could have cut maybe a minute and a half out of the chase scene and just compressed it a little. And um, I'm not real. I'm not real fond of the motives. Okay, so the killers are revealed. We know it's the boyfriend and Stu now, right? Yeah. I mean, we've seen this movie 20 years ago. Wait, or more? <laughs> more. 25. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah time flies, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Fuck me. I, I've lived more years since this movie came out than I'd lived at the point that it did come out. Don't say that. It's true. It's fucking that. nuts. <laughs> right. More than double. All right. So the killers are revealed. Uh, Stu becomes even more fun when he can just fully let loose and be evil. It's a fun game, Sydney. See, we ask you a question, and if you get it wrong, you die. You get it right, you die. Right. You know, Billy's the menacing, creepy one that has more or less planned it all. Stu's the one that's kind of been roped into doing it because I guess he just wants to kill people. He's crazy. He's unhinged. It's not even being roped in. He just wanted the opportunity. Like, Now, you don't like the motives, Steve. Well, I like, I actually, oddly enough, I actually like Stu's motive better. Oh, Stu, Stu, Stu. What's your motive? Billy's got one. The police are on their way. What are you going to tell them? Peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. I'm gonna rip you up, you bitch! Just like your fucking mother! The idea that he didn't have any real reason and was just kind of a nutcase who liked killing people, because you find that kind of thing. You look at, like, Ed Gein or, or the Gainesville Ripper, who this movie was partly based on. Like, sometimes they did, you know, but a lot of the time, like, those guys were just psychologically scarred or they'd grown up in abusive households and they didn't really know why they wanted to do it, aside from that they wanted to do it. That's frightening. That really is frightening. The idea of a human being who's willing to murder and mutilate other people for no real reason, I think is almost scarier than, than somebody having a reason to do it. It's the millennium. It is. It's the millennium. Motives are incidental. And and this is actually part of how this worked out. They, they couldn't decide, Williamson couldn't decide what the character's motive should be. And they realized, he, he initially wanted the character to not have one because he thought it was more frightening. And that turned into a discussion when they realized they had two killers. They just decided to give one motive to each of them. So, Stu's doesn't bother me. I find that scary. He's just fucking broken. Like, but Billy goes off on this whole thing about how Sidney's mother had an affair with his father. And that's what caused his mother to leave. And he's, he's got a broken home and a broken childhood. And like, I don't buy it. Your slut mother was fucking my father. And she's the reason my mom moved out and abandoned me. How's that for a motive? Total abandonment causes serious deviant behavior. Certainly fucked you up. It made you have sex with a psychopath. I don't, I don't, his character hasn't seemed like that much of a mama's boy up to that point. Like, like, I get it's upsetting your parents got divorced, especially if you're a teenager when it happens. But, like, 
I, I just, I don't, I don't buy it. You know, mommy left because your, your mom had an affair. Like, why aren't you blaming your dad? Kill your dad for humping Sydney's mother. Like, you know, I, I just, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me really, but whatever. Any, that's the part that bothers me. Okay. <laughs> this seems small enough. Dylan, yeah. if you were a killer, if you were Stu, or if you were Billy, if you were in their position, mm-hmm. would you take a stabbing before you finished your job or would you wait until everyone was dead before you let your friend stab you that's a very good point here's the thing i would wait if i was a cold calculated killer but the thing is Stu and billy are all about the theatrics and the performance of it all and what better way than to like demonstrate that in front of who you're like crowning achievement victim is going to be so i think it it fully makes sense but it does certainly jeopardize their plans without them maybe realizing it i think at that point they're letting the drama of it all outweigh like the practicality of it all no you're right Um, it does make for some funny it does make some for some funny (laughs) dynamics and dialogue between the two in the the coming moments yeah yeah i'm ready baby My turn. Don't forget, stay to the side and don't go too deep. Okay, I remember. Ah! Fuck! 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 God damn it, Stu! Sorry, Billy. I guess I got a little too zealous, huh? It does. It is clearly driven more by the desire from the filmmakers to have it on screen than anything else like because otherwise you're right there's no reason to start stabbing each other before you've killed everyone except for it to be something for the audience to say well no but i think it for their from audience a character right? point yeah exactly but but it's, i mean for both because from the from the character's perspective he wants the audience of the people that are in the room but from the filmmaker's perspective he wants the audience that is the audience yeah it's like they were writing that for the audience to watch because otherwise they they kill everyone and then they start stabbing each other, which you can't do because if that's the case, then they've killed everyone and Sydney ends up dead. And that's not the way you want the movie to end. So the only way you write it, if you want this to happen, is in a way that makes no sense. You have them start stabbing each other before everyone else is dead. Well, I think it does make sense now based on what Dylan has said and partially what you had said. But that really puts it together for me. See, because I- they are very over the top with like playing the game, you know, stringing up Drew Barrymore stringing up the coach so they could this is a uh, a movie to them in the movie right she said everybody dies but us everybody dies but us we gonna carry on and plan the sequel because let's face it baby these days you gotta have a sequel ah! Ah! i'm sick for fuck's you've seen one too many movies now sid don't you blame the movies movies don't create psychos Movies make psychos for creators! Stop it, Billy, would you, all right? I can't take any more. I'm feeling a woozy air. I go for it halfway. I buy it for Stu. I don't buy it for Billy. I don't think Billy cares. I really don't. I don't think Billy's even interested in the theatrics. In fact, Billy is the most dismissive of everyone of Randy's bullshit every time Randy starts talking about what the horror movie rules are. I think Stu is just an angry kid. 
Stu's just like, I'm going to kill... I mean, not Stu, Billy. Billy's just an angry kid. Billy's just like, I'm going to kill some people. Yeah, I but th- how many movie references does Billy make when he's revealed to be exactly, the killer? Exactly, a million. Yeah, he's talking I mean, about but, Carrie. He's talking about whatever, Exorcist. Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, everything. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I mean, it, there's definitely a couple he throws in there, but I still... I don't know. I could be wrong, but I never get the impression that his character cares about the theatrics. I think, I think Stu gets off on the theatrics leading up to the murder, and I think Billy gets off on the murder. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I look it's like the, the, the he does do he does do the Carrie reference, but the Carrie reference is only when he's admitting to Sydney that he faked his own stab wounds to say that you know, look, I used corn syrup just like they did in that movie Carrie. Because earlier they'd been having that conversation about wouldn't it be nice if life was a movie, and Sydney says, "I wish I was Meg Ryan." Basically, I don't know. I, 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 I. I I see Dylan's point. You might be right. Maybe I'm wrong. I still don't fully buy it, though. I, I, I think that that was added more to just have the scene in the movie than it was because it makes any sense motivationally. In the story, it really is their downfall, I think. Yeah. Because they could have probably overcome their adversaries, Sydney and the others that are basically wounded at this point, um, if they weren't wounded themselves. And why put on a show for someone you're about to murder? I don't get it. I do think, and this is something we can probably all agree on, is that Matthew Lillard is really funny. Dude, at this point, hilarious on. in this moment. He yeah. is the best. There are two things in that regard. Quick ones I wanted to mention. Number one, there's a part they're trying to stop Sydney, I think, from calling nine one one, and Billy ends up holding the phone, a cordless phone, and they stab each other. And as Billy is walking away, he basically just throws the phone at Stu. And Stu has this moment where he's like, "Ah, oh, you threw the phone at me." You know, he's got this great reaction. It's a perfect reaction. That was not planned. It was not in the script. Skeet Ulrich apparently just sort of tossed the phone because he thought it would work for the character. He didn't mean for it to hit um, Matthew Lillard, but when it did, Lillard reacted that way. It's another moment Craven just kept in the movie that it worked. And then likewise, Stu's line about, he starts crying. He says, my parents are going to be so mad at me. That was not in the script. Lillard ad-libbed that moment. Call the police. You're sorry, ass. I can't. My mom and dad I have to think there's several little things he ad libs in here. Like I like the line where the phone rings for the first time after Sydney's Sydney has escaped, and he's like, "Should we let the machine get it?" <laughs> and just, I love that line so much. It's a good and one. And obviously, just the lines where he's like, "I think I'm dying here, man," or "I'm feeling a little woozy," just like. I don't know. Only Matthew Lillard in this movie can pull those off in the way he does. It is it is perfect. Sydney basically kind of like turns the tables on him. Like you mentioned the part where she she hides and she puts on the costume. She does the phone call to them. We just talked about that. She she gets him with the umbrella, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is following dumping a TV onto Matthew Lillard's head. Yes. Now that's like straight out of fucking some Elm Street 3 Dream Warrior shit. Like, <laughs> that that's one of the better deaths in the movie, right? I mean, we had these fucking big-ass CRT TVs yeah. back then, and I remember thinking, like, what if this thing just fucking fell forward on my head? Oh, my God. And then this movie shows it to us, and, uh, yeah, it's great. My, my father had a few big ones in a row. When I was in high school, we moved a few times, and one of those moves, he had this, I think it was 36 or 38-inch, CRT he wanted moved into a into his master bedroom in the new house it was on the second floor I've never heard movers 
complain that much in my life. In my life, they I've, I've seen movers move cement statues they didn't complain that much about. That TV must have weighed 350 pounds. It's a narrow staircase. Like, yeah, I always used to think, like, if this shit fell on me, it would be the worst situation <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Welcome to prime time. Welcome to prime, 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 prime. <laughs> Falls on your head and shit. Yeah, those things were heavy as fuck. Good TV, though. <laughs> I mean, speaking of Elm Street, so we know that Wes Craven directed the first Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. right? And he's done other horror movies. Before this movie, I think he did Vampire in Brooklyn, which is a whole other conversation. (laughs) But at some point in this movie, I I think at the party, they say, like, the first Nightmare on Elm Street was good and the rest sucked or something like that. Yeah, that's in the opening scene when uh, Casey is talking about it. Right. So so that's way earlier. So I got the time wrong. The sequel sucked. But But yes, a very funny line. Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, the first one was, but the rest sucked. And I was like, ah, that's because he didn't do the sequels. And then I realized, I was like, wait a minute. He did Wes Craven's New Nightmare before this. That's true. (laughs) So maybe he doesn't even believe in that one very well, but... (laughs) Yeah, I I like that movie. Is that that one regarded as, as shit, Steve? I... I think it was generally okay received at the time. I I don't I I don't think the opinion of it today is super high. I my impression is that people don't regard it as being complete garbage, but it's not like loved. You know, it's I I think it came off as clever at the time. The the whole reason that movie existed, oddly enough, is because he hadn't been involved in the sequels and hated them and thought that he could reboot the franchise a little bit in a way that would make it better. And uh, some of it were, some of it didn't. Yeah, not either. Either way, not regarded as being particularly good in any case. I stand by New Nightmare. So I guess when we pot on that, we'll see if my opinion maintains. <laughs> I might be with you. I don't dislike it. I think it's flawed, but I don't think it's that bad. It's certainly nowhere near as bad as like Ghosts of Mars. And like he's done some. Sh- maybe that was Carpenter. That was Carpenter. That was bro. Carpenter. Steve and I get him confused sometimes. But the two between the two of them, both very interesting careers. A, a lot of real, real, real sincere garbage, pockmarked by some really good stuff. <laughs> Agree. Now, would you yeah. say, like, while we're on this subject, is the crown jewel of his career Scream, or is it Nightmare on Elm Street? I feel like this is a much debated topic. I personally find Nightmare on Elm Street to be very underwhelming so scream is the easy pick for me but certainly a lot of a lot of contentious debates on this subject i think nightmare on elm street might be a little underwhelming for a lot of people 35 and under just because the genre had already been around for so long by the time they were old enough to be conscious of it and that movie being such an inventive force within the genre was kind of lost because it wasn't such a new thing when they saw it but halloween and it really did sort of reinvent that franchise I, I really like it. I would consider I would consider that to be the more inventive nightmare to be the more inventive of the two films. But I, I me personally, I'd say that they're dual crown jewels. It's kind of like how in course racing there's the triple crown. I think the two of them are his his double crown, his double gem, because one of them helped define what Nightmare defined what slasher films would be for years to come. It also was one of the first films to b- blend slasher with fantasy, which is really a huge deal. And it came off very well for the most part. But this is the film that then reinvented slasher films for a new generation. So I think they're significant in their own way. Very true. I'd land on Scream, probably. Yeah. I mean, as much as I grew up loving Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and, you know, that's a huge franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street, to the point (laughs) where it was like, 
you know, video games and yeah. kids merch and toys. And it's one of the few horror movies they tried to turn into a thing for kids too. Right. It's just really weird, yeah. and certainly one of the most notorious of the like horror movie slasher movie icons. Freddy Krueger's, you know, in the top two, three of that list. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's another thing. If you think about it contextually like that, you've got you've got Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Norman Bates, maybe maybe Hannibal Lecter, Michael Myers, Michael Myers. There there aren't that many. There's a real short list of the horror like protagonists who really stand through time and, and antagonists or antagonists. Yeah. <laughs> and then protagonists. Kru- I often root for Leatherface during, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and well, I, I see, and that's a good point of comparison. Cause like the original Texas chainsaw movie is entertaining in a way, but it's also garbage. Like it, it's good garbage in its own right, but it's garbage. Like nightmare on Elm street. Wasn't, wasn't garbage in that way. It wasn't just a, like te- Texas Chainsaw is almost a fetish piece. It really the whole point of it is just to see somebody with a chainsaw dismember teenagers. I would argue there's more to that movie than that. I'm on a hard disagree as well. If yeah. if I have to choose which one is like the more, uh, you might be thinking of the the next generation, whatever. Well, yeah, we're not talking McConaughey here. We're talking the original. That one's definitely awful. But I mean, they don't. Leatherface doesn't get a lot of human context in those films. I mean, there's, there's. I think that's nice about it, though, because you just wander out, and then it's suddenly you encounter this horror. I've never felt more white knuckled than the last thirty minutes of that movie. Whereas Nightmare on Elm Street, I found myself actively laughing at certain moments. I, I find that interesting, but I see. But I, that's kind of the, the dichotomy that I'm pointing out is like the whole point of Texas is just being scared. I guess it's, maybe that's horror at its core in a way, but like it's really just about this strange, crazy guy with a human skin mask killing other people were at least a nightmare, whether or not they pulled it off. They tried to make it more layered than that. Like Kruger was a character with a backstory. They built yeah, this, they, they built this whole, this whole scheme where he's pulling people into a fantasy world where the rules of reality no longer apply. And that makes things kind of extra scary. The idea that he doesn't even need to get you in the real world, that he can draw you into dreams and kill you in your dreams. Like, for me, whether or not you liked it as much as a separate discussion, but I think it's a much more multi-layered film than something like like Chainsaw. It, it wasn't. It was gory. It was about murders, but it wasn't. I don't know. The motivation seemed less. Let's see how many kids we can kill. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. They kind of operate on fundamentally fundamentally different points of how to make you uncomfortable. Like one is like physically what you're watching, what you're seeing, right. versus one is more intimate and the idea of like what could happen and and you know in a way scream is like that too it's kind of doing yeah. a different thing it's not really aiming to be in either two of those categories yes. or just a straight up slasher and so like honestly it's impressive that Wes Craven was able to do that twice come up with like a completely fresh thing yes. to the horror game 100 100 million percent you you surmised really my point uh, your point as well but my point better than than I was able that was really my point it's just that like I, I, for me, these are equal as accomplishments for him because in both cases, he redefined and reestablished what the genre was going to be for that generation of people. And like, you may be able to say 30, 35, 40 years after the fact that the original Nightmare doesn't really do it for you as an individual viewer. And that's fair. It's a subjective matter. But like, I think as, as, as accomplishments with the genre of horror, for him, they're equal. And then there's others as well. You know, the thing we talked about before, the thing is a whole different kind of accomplishment in horror. Right. Whole different, whole different level. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, this movie, by the way, Scream, uh, we, we touched on it briefly, but it does end with Billy getting shot by Gale. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we have the 
last horror trope of the movie where the killer comes back for one final scare and he literally says like boo or something <laughs> yeah he just, just kind of hollers at them He's like, Whoa. that's part of what i like about this film as well is they make the they, they recognize the cliches for what they are and the the entertainment in it is in acknowledging that the cliche is a cliche you know yeah yeah this is like an older kind of movie like there's not a lot of follow-up at the end right? right it's just like the cops show up and the reporter comes up and says like all right this is the story of what happened right so like add another metal layer to it I, I dig that too i don't think i i mean maybe you guys disagree i'd be interested to hear if you do but i don't really need the six months later or three years later add-on at the end of the, i don't need to see her like living a normal life later you know it's just we, this is this is that was the story it's over yeah. Yeah, I yeah. like how it just kind of gets out at the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I don't think in almost all cases like the sequel bait at the end of a movie is a good thing. Yeah. And I, I might just be super turned off because of Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Um, which is You're just right, like though. burned, burned into my mind because that was like the first sequel bait I ever saw. But this movie doesn't do that, and that's good. It just ends. Even though there was obviously more oh, in yeah. the works. Well, the only movie I can... There are probably others I'm forgetting, but the only movie I can think of where that actually wasn't bothersome was the second Back to the Future. You know? Because it's like, you, you, you knew the third one was coming, but like, I don't know. They set it up in a way that I was like... At the end of that one, I wasn't like, ugh, there's going to be more of this. I was like, holy shit, there's going to be more of this. Like... Yeah, we're going to have to reshoot this whole scene with a different actress. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true. Wait, fuck. I love those movies. Do you guys have any final thoughts on anything about Scream before we do our ratings? Yeah, okay. The guy, I don't know how they fixed it in the end. The guy that they originally hired as their director of photography was named Mark Irwin. Well, okay, yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't know. A, I don't know how they fixed it. And B, I have no idea why it took them so long to notice. But apparently, like 75% through the production of the film... Craven was watching dailies. Dailies are snippets of the movie they watch after they've been shot to make sure they got things shot the way they were supposed to. They're watching dailies and Craven realized that like 80% of what they'd shot was out of focus. And then he went back and he looked at other days shooting and realized that it was almost all out of focus. And the director of photography is in charge of setting up and well, partly setting up and supervising the use of the cameras, but he doesn't use them. There's a camera crew. At one point early in his career, my father was a camera assistant. They're the ones that actually operate the camera. And they're responsible for multiple things, including what's called racking focus, which is just what keeps the camera in focus. And so Craven went back to Mark Irwin and said, almost everything you shot is out of focus. We didn't notice it before. I want you to fire your camera assistant and your camera operator and hire new people because these guys are not doing your jo their jobs correctly. And Irwin came back and said, I want to keep them despite the fact that they fucked up. If you're going to fire them, you got to fire me. And Craven said, fine, you're gone too. And all of them <laughs> got fired. And they ended up having to reshoot at least part of the movie to get the scenes back in focus, which is crazy to what me. What a bizarre story. It is. It's really weird, especially weird. especially for it to have taken that long to notice. If the photo, footage, that that much of the footage is out of focus, usually they'll notice three, four, five days into shooting. The and fact at that this it, high of a professional level and scale, too, yeah. like for something that glaringly obvious. Yeah. Right? So that's a weird side note. One other one about the film. The movie ended up being, did, yeah, did end up being financially successful, made somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million at the box office, but... It was a slow trickle. The movie had a an okay opening weekend. It wasn't bad, wasn't great. It had an okay opening weekend, but the word of mouth was good enough the opening weekend 
that it draw more people to the theater. And then that kept multiplying. So the film ended up making a hundred million bucks or so, but it took like eight weeks, 12 weeks. It's really interesting. The film managed to hold its spot on the box office basically that entire time. Well, I want to speak to that. So this movie came out on December 20th of 1996 in American theaters. Yeah. What comes out for the Christmas movie screenings? It's usually family movies. Yeah. It's something mm-hmm. that your family's going to go to on Christmas. Yeah. Which people do. And and they did that on purpose. They thought, they actually genuinely thought that would work to their advantage. Craven believed that there were going to be some people out there who wanted something other than a sappy, friendly, f- f- family-friendly movie to see and that nothing would be available. And that if they released this film in December, it would give everyone who wanted something other than a Christmas movie something to go see. And I, I think he was right. They just didn't all go see it at once. Hmm. I mean, but, people saw it. Yeah, oh, yeah. And to to add to your point, it was $173 million. $173. So, yeah, I mean... Huge. That, huge, huge, huge take. And it's interesting that, you know, normally a movie like this that does that well the bulk of that revenue will happen over like a two or three week period. And then they'll trickle off for a few weeks before the movie leaves theaters. This movie was in theaters for like eight weeks. They kept it around because it kept, kept hanging around. Really interesting. One other side note I always think is interesting. I like mentioning because I think it's hilarious. Not really related specifically to the movie, but Craven is super well educated. He got like, I think he's got three separate degrees from major universities and was actually a university professor for the first several years of his professional life before he got into movies. When he eventually decided to make movies, it was partly driven because he'd been shooting a bunch of stuff himself on 16mm film, but he couldn't find a job right away in the real real industry, in quotes. So he actually worked for several years. I do not know what the the pseudonym was. I wish I did. But he worked for several years under a pseudonym as a writer, director, and editor of porn films. So this guy gets three separate degrees, starts a career as a university professor— then starts making his own movies on 16 millimeter film, decides that's what he wants to do for a living, gives up teaching, ends up becoming a writer, director, and editor of porn movies under a pen name, and then eventually manages to get real work for himself. What a crazy career. That is a one of a kind <laughs> career arc. Right. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for me. Dylan, do you have any final thoughts? No, I think I've about covered uh, most of my thoughts on this episode. I will give one quick shout-out to the score, because never really like worked that in, but it, this movie does have a very strange and unique score that kind of alternates between the classic like horror rising tension on strings or like percussion. It like alternates that with strange electronic choirs and things of that nature. I don't know, it's, it's kind of experimental in a way. There's some very odd moments of music and, and sound cues in this movie, but... I think that, you know, just adds another thing that defines this movie in its own way. So that's about the only thing that I uh, left out at any point. Um, <laughs> and I can't give any more shout outs. Like I, this is my last shout out to Matthew Lord and how fun he is in this movie. Every time I watch this, I forget how much fun he is in certain moments. <laughs> He's great. He was great in so many things. Absolutely. Well, with that being said, Dylan, why don't you give us your rating on any rating scale you want? What's it going to be for Scream, the 1996 one? Because people might be listening to this when the 2022 one has come out. Oh, right, yeah. On the horizon, yeah. yeah. Um, well, this is a easy top three, top two, maybe my number one favorite horror film. It's very close to the promotion on the 1 to 10 scale. I have to a 10 out of 10, but right now it's a 9 out of 10. It's endlessly rewatchable. I love revisiting it, and it's probably becoming an annual, you know, October time rewatch. I got a little bit ahead of the curve here. 
but uh, it's it's definitely a favorite. I think it incorporates three different, not necessarily genres, but kind of story ideas perfectly, which can be hard to do, which is a horror element, a comedy element, and a mystery element. Like those do seem like they can pair up pretty nice, but it's so easy to go into one of those three too deeply or you know, forget about one and focus on the other. And then it comes off as just a little bit muddled and Scream just seamlessly integrates the three. Uh, it's got a perfect cast with great performances, a great screenplay at the heart of it. Definitely a favorite for me, so 9 out of 10. Nice. Uh, let's see, I'm going to give this a grade rating system. I am going to give Scream an A-, minus, so you can interpret that however you want. I think it's a really great movie, um, aside from being a horror movie. It's not a scary movie, I don't think, at least for someone my age. It might be scary for someone who's young, um, but it doesn't really have to be a scary movie to be an engaging movie itself and an engaging horror movie. Like you said, the performances are really great in this movie. Uh, Matthew Lillard is fucking a crazy person. (laughs) I I really hope he's like that in real life. (laughs) That's all, like, maybe not a killer, but you know. (laughs) Everything except that part. At least the attitude. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just like this movie. It's, it's nostalgic for me, and that's a big part of it. That's a big yeah. part of a lot of the movies I like. And uh, it brought back, it revitalized something in movies that needed to be revitalized. I think it's an achievement in filmmaking, and for that, it is a high rating for me. What about you, Steve? I'm going to rate this film 9 out of 10 knife-wielding maniacs. I mean, first of all, nostalgia-wise, since you brought it up, this movie is a slice of the mid to late 90s. And for me, you don't get much better than that. I mean, that's 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 a 10 out of 10 just for, for having that. Like, the 90s were amazing. I miss them. I miss being that age. It's great to get to revisit that that era, that aesthetic, that feeling. There's, there's definitely the 90s feeling is woven into this movie. And that's good. That is really, for anyone who was there, that's good. Yeah. But, you know, even beyond that, like you were saying... None of the people in this movie may be like auteur, like Shakespeare level actors. It does not matter. They were all perfect for their part. Every part was cast properly. No complaints. Everyone pulled their character off in exactly the right way. The the movie, to your point again, did it revitalized something that had gotten a little tired. Halloween had really invented the slasher flick in the late 70s. It had been huge through the, the 80s, but by the early 90s, it was starting to get a little stale. This film brought that back. It made the genre relevant to a whole new new audience of young people. It also drew a lot of younger people's attention back to the big films from the 80s, like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, which is great for, for that. Um, one of the seminal works in Craven's career, as Dylan mentioned, it successfully mixes multiple different genres. I, I, I think a few little niggles, not a perfect movie. Virtually none of them are, but at, at, at being what it is, it's pretty close to perfect and a good one. Yeah. I'm glad that the three of us like this movie as much as we do. And right. we got to do this podcast on it. On the topic of podcasts, Dylan, where can people hear you do your podcast, Cinestudy? Yeah, Cinestudy. If you just search Cinestudy wherever you get your podcast, you'll find my podcast. It's kind of a variety of things. Sometimes it'll be long-form breakdowns, mini-reviews, doing some rankings of different lists or years. A little bit of a, uh, everything over there. Not exactly the most consistent uploader. I'm a busy student, but I do my best, and I appreciate those of you that, that stick out the droughts. But yeah, send a study wherever you get your podcasts, and 
thanks for having me on here, Corey. This was a, a great movie to talk about, and I love being on this pod. So, yeah. absolutely, it's great having you, man. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're able to fit this in in between your studies. Film Dylan is a young man, but as you can tell, he is well educated. <laughs> <laughs> Cine study is great. I want to say that there's a lot of great episodes. Your recent one, your mini review of The Green Knight was uh, awesome and very well informative. We talked about the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre on this podcast briefly. Well, Dylan has a whole episode on that. Which one? The first one. The first one reboot or the first one original? The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, man. All right. Not the one with Jessica Biel in it. (laughs) What are you getting at here? (laughs) I'm actually asking out of curiosity. That technically was the first one in the reboot franchise. (laughs) Fucking Steve is IMDB over here. (laughs) Yeah, but Dylan does a lot of great stuff. We did our top 10 movies of the 90s. It was me, Dylan, and other guys from Spoilers. That was a fucking blast. I love doing it. Very fun pod, yeah. And Scream makes an appearance on my list if you want to hear some more brief thoughts from me and Corey on that. I had it at number eight, I believe, there. Honestly, if I was to redo my list now, it might move up one or two spots. But yeah, that was a very fun pod to do. Yeah, are you going to add Surf Ninjas to your list? Surf Ninjas is still high on my priority watch list <laughs> that I have. So I need to see it so that I can give it a just rating and, and you know figure out where, that's, where that lands among my rankings. Greatest film ever made, right, Steve? Oh, yeah. I mean, people talk about Citizen Kane, but... <laughs> <laughs> they haven't seen Surf Ninjas. Surf no. Ninjas. Fucking noobs. It's, it's really... Well, you know, there is one slightly better movie, Surf Ninjas Must Die, or was it Surf Nazis Must Die? It's not Surf Ninjas Must Die, no. it's Surf Nazis. Nazis Must Die. There you go. That was Yeah, that one was good, too. I like that one. Isn't Surf Nazis a band? I think that is also the name of a band, yeah. Are they actually Nazis? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. But, I, yeah, hey, I don't know. All right. Well, either way, <laughs> it's been a great podcast. If you, the listener, want to write in, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. Our Instagram is bigdumbmoviepodcast. And uh, just tell us what you think. Leave us some comments on YouTube. You can suggest some movies, although I can't make any promises. Uh, I do like to try to get to movie suggestions as much as possible, but send us something that you think we would like to do based on your experience as a listener look and we've gotten all your suggestions for the My Little Pony movie you know who you are we're not gonna watch it stop doing it <laughs> uh, you're calling out um, My Little Pony fan 624 or... <laughs> yes hey he's cool he or she is cool <laughs> thanks for listening My Little Pony fan 624 right <laughs> alright that's it for this podcast we love you play us out Jackson Woo!
still do not understand how the fuck the new Suicide Squad movie works. Is it a different Suicide Squad? Is it a sequel to the other Suicide Squad? Is it a reboot? Like, where does it fit in? It's kept vague enough to where you can interpret it either way, I think. I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> like, just tell me what it is. Either reboot it or don't. Like, either make a sequel or make a reboot. Just decide what it is. Yeah, why does it have to be one of those things for you? Like, why does it have to be so explicit? Because, I don't know, otherwise it's just like, where does it fit? Otherwise, you know, okay, like, you know what it is? Otherwise, it's the graphic novel approach. The great thing about graphic novels, the thing I love about graphic novels is they don't need to fit into any other story arc. You Like, you can have... You could have a series of three graphic novels that interface with each other, or you could have one graphic novel, it's just a total side story, and that's that's fine because they write them in a way where it doesn't fuck with the rest of the world. Like, Batman can have a graphic novel side story that doesn't interfere with the comic books, but, like, with this, it's just, like, I need to know where it fits in context with the other one. Like, is it replacing the other one? I think any great comic book arc can fit in by itself. If it's a standalone story, I'd agree with you. Like, I could see a, what you might call a mid-season where Logan leaves the X-Men and does something on his own for six issues. Like, that much I could get in with. But this is, I just, I guess it's just because I'm, I'm having difficulty making sense of how it fits into the rest of the universe. And that's the part that bothers me. Like, I don't, I don't get what You whether, just want to hate DC, bro. No, you know, and that's, that's part of the problem for me is I love a lot of DC and I see so much potential in that universe. And there are a few things. I can't wait till we eventually do Man of Steel. There are even a few things about Man of Steel I would pick out and actually defend and say that Zack Snyder got these pieces right. But like they've yeah. missed the mark so many times otherwise and have screwed up so much that that's the part I'm really bothered by. It's not that I don't like them. It's that like you guys could have done so much better. Why are you why are you shitting the bed like this? You know? <laughs> Ugh.